Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. We're also joined with Malik Abdul. He's going to be giving us the election coverage. There's nobody better in the business on it. Um, and I, oh, by the way, um, George Galloway show. He has, what's that show called? Moats. It's, that's another mother one, Mother of all talk shows. It's Mother of all talk shows, but he also has one on, like, Iranian television in, oh, I... into something that I was in on. And so, oh. I had a really good spot on that. Definitely check that one out if you get the chance. But I actually didn't know that. Yes. He's a friend of mine. Yes, it is. This was, yeah, it, it appeared yesterday live. They hit me up and said, hey, the show is live. And I watched it. I was like, oh, this is so good. Alexander McCurris was on it. I was like, oh, God, oh, all these cool. guys are on it. So, yeah, it was good. I was, I was happy about that. I like George. George is one of my favorite guys. Is it on press TV or... It's not press. It's called Amadea, Amadine, Amad, oh. something like that. It's another one of those channels. Oh, I wasn't aware. Yeah, but I was. Thank you. That's it. I'm gonna say it again, like one more time. One more time. Alamaya Dean, and it is Al-Maya Lebanese, Dean. not Iranian. I apologize I that deeply for that. Yeah. Alamaya Dean. Yes. Yes. Thank you for being correct. Thank you for correcting me, life on that. But yeah, it was it was a great spot. He had um. It, it takes place in the UK, and so they have all the, you know, McCurs, um, George, it was somebody else. Yeah, it was very exciting. I like George. George is one of my favorite guys. Oh, I love George. Um, but Judgment Day. I yes. know, we're here. Judgment it Day. It Going is. to vote right after this? Uh-oh, right. So right I actually can't wait to Red see wave? where we are this time tomorrow. tomorrow. Same here. What do we know? I am super curious. Have the votes even counted? Yeah. Some places won't. That's... Look, we could talk about this on the other side yes. of the yeah. But let I mean, me, let me the, It seems like the most simplest thing in the world to count votes. No, no, because of the patchwork quilt election yes. system that we have that just makes no sense. And I already, I see a Christmas cup already from Starbucks. Yeah, they skipped already yeah, there. They skipped up. Right, they, <laughs> they skipped Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. All right. Yeah. All right, with that, let's head over <laughs> to some domestic news besides the Starbucks Christmas cup. I know, right? <laughs> I know. That's the news. What ha- we just got out of Halloween. Mm-hmm. What's up with that? Well, oh, you know why. You know why. They want people to spend those dollars for Christmas. For Christmas? That's just so exciting. I walked past the Hilton here, uh-huh. and there's already a Christmas tree up. Is it? In the wow. lobby. So, yeah. Talking about starting early. Yeah. Like, everybody just forsaking Thanksgiving. <laughs> My gosh. All right, let's head over to domestic news. Let's start with uh, former President Donald Trump saying at a rally in Ohio last night that he says he'll make a big announcement. On November 15th, from his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida, he says, quote, I'm going to be making a very big announcement on Tuesday, November 15th, at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida. But we want nothing to detract from the importance of tomorrow, which is now today. Because he knows he would totally (laughs) send the electorate in a tailspin if he were to make the announcement. But I'm, I'm pretty sure... I think it's safe to say he's gonna throw his hat in the ring officially oh, next week. He wanted to make the announcement before. Oh, oh, he did he? Oh no, he really did. Oh, I'm sure. Why do you think he stopped? I mean, I know it feels until tailspin. Told yes. him it wasn't you're, a good idea. Good, yes, yeah, because you, you you're can, gonna you suck can, the air out the room, yes. basically. You can hurt the party, so just just wait. chill, bro. Yeah, just, just chill. Just give it a day. Just give it a chill. Day. 
just, but yeah. But as we know, once you make it official, mm-hmm. once you make it Facebook official, there are other things that are involved. Yes, right. legalities that come yes. into place. Yes. So, yeah, there are legal issues involved so, involved, so you cannot really make the announcement until you are truly, truly, truly ready. Ducks are all in a row. So it sounds like uh, he's got his ducks in a row. So next week. And then speaking of elections, the new Twitter owner, Elon Musk, has now recommended voting for Republicans in congressional races today. He said on his new toy, Twitter, he said, to independent-minded voters, shared power curbs the worst excesses of both parties. Therefore, I recommend voting for a Republican Congress, given that the presidency is Democratic. So then he went on to say, it's hardcore Democrats and Republicans that are unlikely to vote for the other party, so... That's why he made the plea towards independent voters in particular, because independent voters are the group who actually decide election outcomes. So I guess he's appealing to folks like me. (laughs) So, all right. Noted. Then billionaire George Soros, to nobody's surprise, has topped the list of individual political donors for the 2021-2022 cycle contributing more than $128.4 million to Democrats, according to data from nonpartisan election funding tracker. This is not nonpartisan, according to Open Secrets. It's according to Open Secrets. He funds Open Secrets. He does? Yes. Anything that says open whatever is under under George Soros' umbrella. So according to his own foundation. (laughs) Right. They're fact-checking themselves and saying, oh, okay, we donated close to $129 million. And, of course, he's the head of Soros Fund Management. In total, the, the dollar amount was actually $128,475,971.00 to Democrats for this period. Zero money to Republicans. And now that he says $126.75 million was outside money, according to the data. So... Outside money is usually defined as, I would say, probably a lot of his own money that was coming through his different various shell companies. Yeah. That's how you call, that's how you call it, outside money. It's a shell game. Yeah. It's a shell game. But basically it's so Soros. money. It's Soros money. Yeah. <clears throat> so the second biggest contributor was Richard Uline of Uline Inc. You know, the they send you those big old like uh, catalog books of like packaging material and boxes and whatever. So the owner, Richard Uline, who gave $80,692,168 to Republicans. That's also according to Open Secrets. Now they also say NAR, the, the National Association of Realtors, topped the list of political action committees of PACs contributing in the same period about 1.6 million to Democrats and about 1.6 to Republicans. Oh, a pittance in comparison. A hundred million dollars? Right. We're talking that just one a little over a million and a half to both sides. NAR hedging their bets. I used to be a member of NAR. I was a realtor. I sounded very Trumpy in they there. They wanted a little bit of both. They want, yeah, they're hedging them. their bets. So they're like, okay, let me make nice. Yeah. Let me yeah, make nice. Most of them do. That's why yeah. I was shocked with Soros giving only to Democrats. Only. Usually you get so, both. That says a lot. 
George Soros, only backing Democrats. Then U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, Fed face Jake Sullivan, said during a think tank event that U.S. officials recently had an opportunity to engage with the Russian government at senior levels to reduce risk and convey the consequences of the potential use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Jake, I'm pretty sure they're aware. American media reported that Sullivan has been conducting confidential talks in recent months with Kremlin aide Yuri Ushakov and Russian Security Council Secretary Nikolai Petrushev. The Kremlin and the White House declined to confirm that such talks took place. Quote, We in the Biden administration have had the opportunity to engage at senior levels with the Russians to communicate, to reduce risk, to convey the consequences of the potential use of nuclear weapons, Mr. Sullivan said. And when asked about his reported talks with the officials, he says, We have not described the channels that we have done in order to protect those channels. (coughs) Well, all right then. That U.S. law enforcement agencies have not identified any credible threats related to the midterm elections this week. White House Press Secretary Jean, Karine Jean-Pierre, speaking Monday, she said, Law enforcement has briefed us that there are no specific credible threats identified at this point, she made uh, during her Monday press briefing and asked whether there was a chance of a repeat of J6. She said, President Biden has been briefed on the threat environment and directed that all appropriate steps be taken to ensure safe and secure voting occurs. Then to some international news here, the U.S. government is drafting a resolution for the U.N. Security Council to increase sanctions and pressure on North Korea and is also considering deploying an aircraft carrier in the Sea of Japan should North Korea conduct a nuclear test citing Japanese media. Now, in particular, the draft resolution may include a restriction on the export of oil and oil products from North Korea, as well as sanctions against the Lazarus Hacker Group, which is allegedly affiliated with the North Korean regime. In addition, it is not ruled out that if the draft resolution is not approved, the United States, Japan, and South Korea will impose unilateral sanctions against the North. Why do they have to do that? Donald Trump didn't have to do that. I guess what I'm getting at is diplomacy. Yes. Right. Diplomacy Diplomacy works. Well, here's the thing. So I, there, I've made Twitter remarks about this that, you know, and and I've I've seen others um, that say, that jokes say, saying that the State Department, I wonder if all they do all day is print sanctions. That's what it seems like. But then I've had, I've seen, and I've had the responses myself people saying, sanctions are diplomacy. Look, a number is, of NAFO trolls Look, war is also diplomacy. Said, I mean, if you want to put right, it that way. Right, and that, But that's not how normal, sane people define diplomacy. Correct. It You're means state talking. Department. It, right, a statecraft. It's yes. talking to one another. Not You're not doing what I want, so I'm going right. to sanction you and, and hurt you. signing letters urging for peace talks. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Everything doesn't demand a muscular response. Right. Like, we're going to show, we, we need to get a kneel. It, it doesn't need to be that way. The fact of the matter that Trump was able to show you didn't need to do this right. makes it that much clearer. Like, 
They weren't firing these missiles off when no, Donald Trump was in office. Not. Like, love or hate Donald Trump, that is true. That about is so North aggravating. Korea. But That's there was a- the Twitter spat. Yeah. Which was hilarious. It was. So, <laughs> let's be honest. It was pretty hilarious. Because calling him Rocket Man and all this other little stuff. Ro- yeah. Little Rocket Man. <laughs> right, right. And then he called him a dotard, which I think is actually pronounced dotard. But, but that brought dotard or dotard, tomato, tomato, into the American lexicon. Yeah. So thank <laughs> you, Kim Jong-un. Expanding American vocabulary. One insult at a time. At a t- I was thinking the same at a time. Perfect. Then more than a quarter of Europeans say they are in a precarious financial state. And half of them fear they'll soon be as well, according to a new poll. So basically everybody thinks they're in a ter- terrible financial like 75%. state. 75%. Yeah. We're screwed. Or will be screwed. Yes. The screwing is coming, is what they're saying. The Six Nations survey by Ipsos for French poverty NGO, Secours Populaire, People's Aid, found that 27% were in financial dire straits as defined as one expected expenditure could change everything. So basically one catastrophe away from disaster. That's the United States. They're they're in line with us now because like forty four percent of Americans, I believe, are one, you know, paycheck away broke from disaster down car, or something. Yeah, one broke down car, one busted water heater away from disaster. Fifty five percent said they had to be careful with spending to avoid getting into that position. Then fifty four percent, six thousand people polled in France, Germany, Greece, Italy, Poland, and the UK had seen their purchasing power decline over the last three years. Now, almost nine out of 10 cited rising prices for food, fuel, heating, and rent, now going through the roof thanks to Western sanctions on Russia over its military operation in Ukraine as the reasons for their declining prosperity. Three in 10 said taxes. So, you know. And then Chinese President Xi Jinping expected to visit Saudi Arabia before the end of the year. So a Christmas visit. Well, I guess it's not really applicable to either of those parties. So nobody's, you know, nobody really cares it's Christmas for them. Uh, Now, Sino-Saudi trade has steadily increased since they established relations back in 1990, with China buying up 27% of Saudi oil exports last year. That's more than a quarter. Now, at the end of 2021, annual bilateral trade amounted to 87.3 billion bucks. Between January and August of 2022, Saudi Aramco delivered an average of 1.76 million barrels per day to China. Now, Riyadh has long supported China's positions on key issues, including sovereignty over Taiwan, its de-radicalization policies in Xinjiang, and speaking at a meeting with Foreign Minister Faisal bin Farhan al-Saud of Saudi Arabia, the Chinese Foreign Minister and State Councillor Wang Yi told reporters that Beijing, quote, attaches great importance to developing relations with Saudi Arabia, taking Saudi Arabia as a priority in its overall diplomacy, in its Middle East diplomacy in particular. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind of Of course. To. I mean, the petrodollar, they want to get rid of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh... That's coming. Now, speaking of China, let's add, we've, we talked about adding a lot of A's, a lot of letters to this acronym, to BRICS. Algeria. Algeria. Yeah, another Algeria, one. Algeria, sa has made an official application to join BRICS, according to Foreign Ministry Special Envoy, Leila Zuruki. 
This comes after Iran and Argentina earlier this year announced they're going to look into joining the group. So BRICS International Forum President Purnima Anand told, uh, noted that Turkey, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia may very soon follow suit in applying. So I don't know. I think you just go with BRICS Plus. It's just a lot easier. Let's just go with BRICS Plus. BRICS is a good name. Yes. Don't spoil it. It's a strong name, right? It's a good name. BRICS. It's good marketing. Yeah. BRICS Plus. Latinx. Yeah, right. LGBTQ Plus. Just Plus. Let's just add the Plus. So if any of you are listening out there in BRICS, just add the Plus, please. Please. For us media folks, let's, let's have the acronym remain the same. Then this day in history, back in 2002, Iraq disarmament crisis, UN Security Council under resolution 1441 unanimously approves a resolution on Iraq forcing Saddam Hussein to disarm or, quote, face serious consequences. We know the outcome of that. In 2005, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf is elected president of Liberia, the first woman to lead an African nation. Then in 2016, Republican Donald Trump today elected 45th president of the United States, defeating Democrat Hillary Clinton with an electoral college victory of a walloping 304 to just 227. Clinton received just about uh, roughly 2.9 million more popular votes, though. Basically California. Basically California, yes. All right, that's going to do it for your headline. This Tuesday, November 8th, you are listening to Fault Lines. Oh, right. Interesting news. Yeah, I I don't know what it is. For some reason, the North Korea thing bugs me because they continue to do these military exercises on the border of North Korea. North Korea says, stop that. You're pretending like you're going to have a decapitation strike on us. We don't like that. In which case, the media often even ignores the fact that that's basically taking place. and just say Rocket Man is nuts and he's just firing off missiles for no reason. It's not for no reason. If you have this kind of provocative action saw, on your border. He saw what happened to Libya. Gaddafi. That's right. And if you remember, they bought that up specifically for him. I think it was, was it Bolton or one of those guys who was talking about the Gaddafi model? In which case he lost it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's like, it's, I guess my point is, you've had the model to show you don't need to do this. You can work with these guys. Mm-hmm. You, you know, he's not an, un, what is it called? Um, he's not an unreasonable actor in this case. He, like many other leaders, want to maintain their power, et cetera. Deal with that. Instead, you must kneel before Zod. It becomes that nonsense yep. constantly. And it's like, dude, not everybody's going to kneel before you or want to kneel before you. Mm-hmm. You're creating these kind of provocative, muscular reactions between. These guys are now firing off missiles. They weren't doing that before. Nope. You know, there are levels to crazy. Yes. Yes. They are. <laughs> they are. I mean, and, you know, just because somebody's crazy don't necessarily mean you can't work with them or they don't necessarily have um, their own best interests in yep. mind that you can't work with. So you guys are listening to fault lines. I'm sorry. That, that annoys me like nobody's business. This is an issue of war and peace always, I guess. You guys are listening to fault lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan. We're with Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Cham. Malik Abdul is joining us, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And as we noted, Judgment Day. Judgment Day. Now, I don't mean Terminators coming from the future shooting people. I don't mean it that way. I mean it as a referendum on one President Joe Biden, because whatever you want to think of the midterms, 
it is clearly a referendum on the president of the United States. And there is an expectation of a red wedding. I don't mean Jon Snow. I mean a red wedding where Republicans basically running the roost. In one of the cases right here, president approval has long been a sturdy predictor. This is Washington Post in the share of vote that the president party will receive in the House elections. In the past four midterms, the president's party received on average only one point above the president's job approval rating in the national exit poll. With Biden polling so low, that dooms Democrats to a terrible performance. And they make the point of saying in 2006, the president's approval rating was 42 percent. His party got 44 percent of the vote. 2% 2% difference. And you go down the list. 44% after. Right. All right. This was like, this was George Bush. At, right. You're yeah. right. This was George Bush. Yeah. Exactly. And then in 2010, you had 45%. Percentage of the party won, 45%. Difference, 0%. 2014, 44% from the standpoint of the approval of Obama. 46%. That's how much his party won. 2% difference. You can go down the list. And the argument that they're basically making here is, look, because Biden's approval rating is so low, if you get that 2% difference, you are still going to get a shellacking. Now, this is an estimate of 5.5 points. It could be higher, maybe a bit lower. But either way, referendum on one President Joe Biden. And of course, this isn't magic. This wasn't a situation where it needed to turn out this way. I understand that there were all sorts of challenges. But think back for the entire year where they had these negotiations on the Build Back Better plan that they kept cutting the money lower and lower and lower. And then they just put it on the shelf because they couldn't get it done. And then they call it the Inflation Reduction Act while inflation was going through the roof. Speaking of inflation, if you remember, for the last year, Joe Biden has said it's transient, it's transient, it's transient. All the way up the march, it's transient, finally accepting, okay, maybe this is not transient. Meaning the president was failing in the open for months on end. And you can see his approval rating get less and less with each potential or with each additional failure. Afghanistan. Afghanistan was an embarrassment. The president comes out saying Kabul is going to hold. Kabul did not hold. And on top of that, even attacking the Afghani Afghani troops or the Afghan troops who were basically trying to hold the line for the U.S. as the U.S. basically was trying to retreat. Joe Biden said we're not going to see these scenes like Vietnam with people hanging off of helicopters. And to this point, there were no scenes with people hanging off of helicopters. They were hanging off of Chinook aircrafts or whatever those things were called. Basically an embarrassing exit out of that country. COVID deaths. Biden, the adults are back in the room, and yet you have more people die from COVID under the Biden administration than you did under the Trump administration. And that doesn't even get into the war stuff with Joe Biden and the Biden administration, instead of coming to some kind of terms, instead of coming to a new security architecture of Europe, he decides to go all in with this shock and awe from the standpoint of economic devastation. We are going to destroy the Russian economy and we're going to degrade the Russian military while they're on the ground. The American public is looking at this and seeing neither of those things taking place and instead seeing their own economic situation get that much more precarious. This is not a recipe for successful administration. To make it even worse, the people who are being hit the worst, the worst aspects of this are taking place to the people at the lower end of an economic scale, which are the people who Biden is getting out there trying to get them to vote for the same Joe Biden. So Biden, not having much to run on, goes out and scream, they're going to impeach me. Or for that matter, they're going to overthrow the government again. Because you can't necessarily come up with a rational justification of why those people should basically put you or that matter, your particular party in office, considering what you guys have basically done or for that matter, not done. 
and this doesn't even hit the woke stuff. I mean, when you talk about the schools and some of the things that they were playing in these schools and even beyond the issues of foreign policy and the things that Joe Biden failed on, what about the things Joe Biden didn't even really try on? $15 an hour minimum wage. He comes in office screaming, this is a starvation wage and we need to work with these heroes, these heroes, these people who are out there when we didn't have to be. Meaning when various people who could basically work remotely, you had a lot of people who could not work remotely because their jobs didn't necessarily allow them to work remotely. Joe Biden said these people were heroes, and I agree. They were heroes. They were basically going to take the hit from the standpoint of COVID for us. $15 an hour, he got an office, said there was a starvation wage, and within a whim, within a whim, gave it up. Oh, the parliamentarian is so powerful that I can't necessarily do anything about this. And to make it even worse, the lefties who had the capacity just because of the narrow, let's say, margins within the context of the House of Representatives, had every bit as much as power as a Joe Manchin to not allow that bill to go through without having that $15 an hour minimum wage attached to it. If indeed those people are heroes, why weren't you willing to go to the mat for those people, those heroes, as you call them? If indeed $15 is a starvation wage or less than $15, then is it not still a starvation wage now? And couldn't that count or shouldn't that count as a failure of this particular administration? Not just administration, the lefties who are in Congress. This is not a minor point. $15 an hour. If you are walking around with $12 an hour, there's nowhere on this, in this country you can live by yourself with $12 an hour. Now we'd even argue at $15 an hour, you probably can't live by yourself. But at the very least, that number is significant. My mom, with the entire time not making $15 an hour, meaning her entire work career, trying to raise a kid off of that, she is not alone in this, which is why I'm so adamant about this very specific point. You would have been able to give people a large, a bump, even if it wasn't a huge bump, a bump in their salaries across the country, across the United States, putting that much more money into those people's pockets. And yes, that money would be eaten by inflation now because of other policies that Joe Biden put out. But at the very least, that money would be in their pockets. Lefties, Biden capitulated almost immediately. Marijuana legislation. Again, this was something that Biden could have did himself. The scheduling. And yeah, the few people that he got, many of which were already out of jail, doesn't count as the same thing as changing the scheduling for marijuana legislation. What about the school loans? $10,000? $10,000 with $30 trillion in debt. You've been sending $50 billion to Ukraine and trying to put another $40 billion bill through. And people are saying, hey, what about the kids in this country? And you don't even... $10,000. You don't even wipe their student debt. What I'm getting at is, if you are going to be a candidate that's supposed to be on the left, there are going to be certain things that run in line in the context of being that candidate who's supposedly on the left. And it seems that in one case after the next, Joe Biden either didn't mean it, didn't have it in him to do it, or just didn't ultimately care. And instead, his concern, his greatest concern, seems to be on the issue of Ukraine. And speaking on the issue of Ukraine for the moment, in any contest, there's a saying in chess that if you try to win a, law, a, a drawn game, you're going to lose it. That's the fastest way to lose a um, game. Basically, trying to win something that you don't have the capacity to win. Meaning, whatever you do, especially if you're a country and you're going to take this kind of muscular, belligerent action, you have to know whether or not your material and mental, let's say faculties, your capabilities, are there in order to accomplish the objective that you are basically trying to accomplish. And if those things are not there, you will suffer. And I would like to point out that the issue with Ukraine is just that. The mental, or for that matter, material capabilities of the United States and NATO weren't there. 
This was an issue of hubris. This wasn't an issue of planning. This was purely an issue of ideological, let's say, sleepwalking into policy that started like 50 years ago with the fall of the Soviet Union and the continued expansion of NATO, despite the fact that they said it wouldn't expand one inch. And as a direct result of that, we are taking a hit. Europe is taking a hit. The world is taking a hit. When you're bidding up the cost of energy, what do you think that does to other countries that are poor, that may not be able to afford that energy? What about the grain that can't get from point A to point B? Many of those shipments ended up going back to Europe, not necessarily to the countries that basically needed it. Meaning, you're not just screwing up on a domestic front. You're not just failing your own domestic population. You are also injuring the world, real terms, full stop. Your policies at this point have basically undermined American power projection across the planet because all things been equal. It's one thing if you're sitting there and people believe power is in a particular spot. It's another thing when you try to exert that power and it fails and it fails and maybe even worse than fail because it's taking us to the brink of nuclear disaster. And no, I'm not saying that Russia uses nuclear weapons. I'm making the point that Joe Biden's screaming about nuclear weapons and all of this other stuff. Depending upon how far NATO is willing to go, you could bring this planet to the brink of oblivion. And that's what I'm getting at. In one policy after the next, whether it was domestic or whether it was foreign, Joe Biden has shown himself to be incapable of doing this job. And that doesn't even get into the whole mental issue stuff um, where you look at him and you're demoralized just by hearing him speak if you're a Democrat. So, yes, today is Judgment Day. And all things being equal, that judgment is going to be rendered against the Democratic Party and against Joe Biden himself. Don't complain to me that it's unfair. Don't complain to me that Republicans are this or that. It's on you. You had the House, you had the Senate, and you had the presidency. You could have pushed to get rid of the filibuster and enacted your agenda. You didn't do that. And in one policy after the next, at the very end, you screamed it when you were trying to get elected. But at the end of the day, at no point did it seem like you meant it. And judgment will be rendered today. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with um, Malik Abdul, Manila Chan. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan, also joined with Malik Abdul, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And if you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around to Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. We'll try to get to you at 845. But I want to bring in our guests. We haven't um, had a conversation about what's taking place on the ground in a while. And Voice of Truth is which I like to call him, the one and only Mark Sloboda. He's an international relations and security analyst. Mark, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing this morning? Tomorrow, Manila, Malik, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Fall Line. It is always an honor and a pleasure to have you. And Mark, I want to get into what's taking place on the ground. Things seem to be static and unclear um, because reports seem to be going all over the place in regards to what's taking place. So let's start in Harrison for the moment. 
What is taking place there? I mean, the evacuations apparently were taking place in order to get the people out of danger. It doesn't necessarily seem like Russia is leaving. It seems like they're basically digging in. And some of the reports are pointing out that the Biden administration is trying to push that part of the reason that Sullivan basically visited Kiev was to try to get these guys to push for an offensive with the hopes of being able to come to some negotiated settlement after the fact. Meaning, okay, we got this now. We can save face by coming to some kind of deal. Tell me what's going on on the ground and tell me the politics of that stuff, too, especially from the standpoint of your perspective of Jake Sullivan's visit. Yeah, I, I think you got it exactly right. And I think probably even more right than than you realize for, for a moment. So the Kiev regime has built up some, according to them, 60,000 troops in northern Kherson in an attempt on a push on on pushing uh, taking Kherson city and pushing Russia out of the region now a lot of those are forced conscripts territorial defense not necessarily very effective uh, units but there are also some of the Kiev regime's best outfitted with the best uh, weapons gear uh, refurbished Soviet tanks and the like that uh, has been provided to the Kiev regime. So it's a formidable force. But as Ukrainian generals have noted, Russia has also significantly reinforced their already quite strong defensive position in Kherson. And um, there are at this point probably 30, 40,000 of the reservists that were called up, those who finished their service in the last year or two and so only needed about a month of, you know, refresher training uh, to be brought up to the front lines. Uh, and again, Kiev regime generals have been commenting about how Russia has also put up significant fortifications, both within Harrison City itself and, and across, you know, the, the region there. Um, for Basically, since the attack on the Crimean Bridge and the resulting Russian airstrikes began to cripple the Kiev regime's electrical infrastructure, there has not been any progress, any no significant progress by Kiev in this uh, direction. They have made continual low-level attacks pretty much every day, right? But these seem to have been DRGs, diversion reconnaissance groups, probing attacks and the like. So in the hundreds and maybe even a thousand or so, but not the big push yet. And all of them have been swatted down really hard with a lot of casualties. And as a result of it, we've seen a lot of videos uploaded by Kiev regime forces onto uh, Kiev regime uh, telegram channel, social media, saying, uh, you know, we're, we're not, this is suicide, we need better orders, you know, we're not doing this. And from foreign mercenaries, quote, quote unquote mercenaries uh, as well, refusing to, to charge across open step into the face of vastly uh, superior Russian artillery, missile strikes, and, and aviation. Uh, so a lot of casualties there. And there have been, Russia has removed, has had an evacuation plan from Kherson City. Uh, they've been getting the civilians out for several weeks now and also for the surrounding region. This is not an indication, as far as I can tell, that Russia is intent on abandoning the city, which has a lot of strategic importance, as sitting as it does on both sides of the Dnieper. Uh, but they're doing what a responsible party when making an urban defense does, according to the rules of war. They're getting the civilians out. 
which is, according to not me, but Amnesty International, the opposite of what the Kiev regime has done, according to them, systematically in this conflict. They turn every building uh, into a firing point. They turn hospitals, schools into bases, right? But they do it without moving the civilians right. out using them as human shields, which is, of course, a war crime. But, you know, the Western media is, uh, is, is really loath to admit that. There's been a few points where they've admitted that. There's like one line in a Washington <laughs> Post article a few months ago and stuff, right, that kind of hints towards it. But, uh, you know, they're not going to admit these things about the regime that their government is supporting in, in Kiev. Um, but um, I think that Russia, is, you know, they have tactically withdrawn when facing superior uh, numbers in the last couple of months before the reservists were called up to preserve their own troops, right? They have never really been beaten in an open battle by Kiev regime forces, but they're not allowing themselves to be overrun by, by human wave, you know, mass numbers tactics. And that has been Kiev regime's advantage, their only advantage really for the last several months of their counteroffensive is manpower. But Russia is nullifying that uh, with their call up the up the reserves, and they've started to filter in now. In another month, month and a half, they will all be there, and it, it, you will see basically almost a tripling of the total number of forces that Russia has had in the theater since the beginning of the conflict, which is really significant, considering that they took about twenty percent of Ukraine uh, and held much of it for um, you know, over half of a year while being an attacking force with numbers you know, uh, outnumbered in many cases one to 10 or more, since the Kiev regime has forcibly conscripted the entire nation, preventing all men between the ages of 16 and 60 from even leaving the country and so on. But Jake Sullivan's visit is really important, and he definitely, whether the U.S. is pushing or whether he's just bridge bringing the the war gamed out battle plans um there just in the last 24 hours there has been a huge movement of ukrainian regime forces on basically the east side of the Kherson theater right in the direction of the kohovka dam and baraslav um and they're they're moving everything to the front line so expect in the next two to three days that major big final Kiev regime push uh, on Kherson before the winter to finally happen. And I do not think it is a coincidence that Jake Sullivan was just in Kiev yesterday. Yeah. I mean, all things being equal, the question is, how does the USA face in this situation? I mean, this kind of question that came up yesterday. And if they can get one big win, I mean, the argument is you probably should have did it after Kharkov if you're going to do it. Um, all things being equal. Um, there was another location, Oglada. Um, apparently there yeah, was Ugladar. Ugladar. Explain to me what happened there. Apparently there was Russian casualties or heavy Russian casualties and there was complaints that this attack wasn't necessarily planned all that well. Give me your rundown of this one. Okay, so in, in Ugladar, which is basically southern Donetsk area, I mean, uh, there has the, the Russian slow grinding offensive through these fortifications in Donetsk uh, towards Bakhmut and uh, Avdevka have never stopped. Right. But kind of unexpectedly, about two weeks ago, Russia suddenly launched their own offensive in the direction of Ugladar. 
in the southern Donetsk area. And they had some initial quite surprising successes. Of course, that does not appear that the Kiev regime was expecting a push there. And I wouldn't call it, you know, like a big offensive, but it was a, 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 a significant push. And uh, Uglodar is a very vital transport hub there uh, for that whole uh, southern of Donetsk region. And it would be vital for any Kiev regime offensive in the Mariupol direction, uh, which has has never yet materialized and is unlikely to now. Now, there's one small town where uh, there a lot was made uh, on social media channels of Russian casualties. It, it it is mostly disinformation and um, uh, you know um, exaggerating the claims, as it were. Um, out of a, a three thousand three hundred, and the, there's been a few days for the smoke to clear for journalists to get in, and now the word is out that the, the losses that were suffered there aren't great. I mean, but it's a war and they aren't any type of catastrophic, uh, terrible thing there. The number of killed in action of that unit was 1% out of 3,300. That's about 30. Uh, and then the number of wounded was 7 to 8%, the wounded in action. Um, and some of those are going to be able to be put back into action soon enough. Others, you know, not. Uh, but it is not the catastrophic. Uh, I think that was a bit of a psyop. And, uh, you know, quite often you see the phenomenon where uh, Russians and, and, and people supporting the Russian cause, you know, on social media and, and things are quite often have a, a tendency to very quickly black pill things, as it were, <laughs> to jump to the to the dooming. And, you know, in, in some cases that is warranted, but it's usually done uh, in a panic way too early and they're way too sensitive to uh, Kiev regime attempts to blow anything out of proportion into a major victory or a major loss for Russia. And my advice when I see something like that is myself, I usually just calm myself down and see what happens over a two to three day period for the, the fog of war, the, the, you know, the smoke to clear before I, I draw any uh, assessments or until I hear from someone on the ground uh, in Donbass or elsewhere uh, who has more uh, firsthand reliable information. Hey, Mark, well, what do you make of, I'm hearing reports that apparently Ukraine is receiving its, well, its first uh, air defense systems. I think it's the NASAMS, NASAMS. I think that's the name of it. Um, what, what do you make of that? How do you think that'll factor into um, Ukraine's response? Or how significant is that? I guess that's the question. Yeah, so the, the NASAMS is, is the Norwegian Advanced Surface-to-Air Missile System, uh, something that is, is used, has been used both by, um, by Norway and, and the, the U.S. and, and certain uh, times and locations. Um, it's not a terrible system. It is in many ways inferior to the S-300 air defense system, which has a far uh, longer range uh, uh, than uh, the Kiev regime had at the start of the conflict in much greater numbers. Uh, and um, I think it is somewhere between 10 and 12 NASM systems that are being provided to Kiev alongside a, a number of uh, IRIS German air defense systems, four of them, I believe, in total, which Kiev is getting them before even the German military gets wow. them. And Are these the ASPEED? 
Yeah. So these these are more modern and they are capable. But once again, as is as is the case with with so many air defense systems, a lot of the Soviet legacy systems that Kiev had to start the conflict were, were much better. And these are piecemeal systems that are being brought in. They're not able to be networked for a real air defense system has to be concentrated in layers with different units of different ranges and capacity, short, long range missiles connected to uh, more powerful radar systems. One individual air defense unit, it's not useless, right? It's better than nothing, but it is not the air defense network that Kiev even started this conflict with that has been totally destroyed. So, I mean, it is an attempt at a response and it's better than nothing, but it's certainly no game changer. Mark, I'm hearing reports that there is a deal being negotiated between Serbia and Kosovo um, and the EU, which potentially Kosovo could become a, a UN member. I don't know if this is all true, but this is what I'm you know, reading around. And, and that Serbia becoming an EU member and that they would also receive, obviously, by becoming an EU member, they would get the aid that comes along with it. How does that shift the balance of power, uh, of support or does, you know, can it possibly add to forcing them to have anti-Russian sentiment? Yeah. So first of all, I don't believe. I mean, they've been talking about this for, I don't know, 20 years now. I mean, could know. it be happening finally? Yeah, it could, I, it could be. I don't see it happening uh, right at the moment. I, I think there's actually a lot of tension between Serbia and the EU right now because Serbia is not towing the line right, right. on uh, sanctions against Russia. Uh, you know, while they haven't specifically come out in support of Russia, that already not hewing to that anti-Russian orthodoxy is in the West already considered pro-Russian. And the Serbian president is constantly making statements that are surely infuriate the rest of the West. And they, he has received actually, you know, ultimatums. Right. That um, uh, it's it's either you toe the line or Ukraine or no EU for you. Well, I mean, it was always that with Kosovo. And, and actually, there has been movement of Serbian. I don't want to say military, but more like military police units once again to the border uh, of uh, northern Kosovo, where there is a high, still a high uh, ethnic Serbian population that is still resisting uh, the the regime in Pristina, that the KLA regime that the West set up there already for several decades now. And uh, just in the last couple of days, essentially, from what I've heard, all of the ethnic Serbian people who had worked for the government, the police, in any capacity in Kosovo, all resigned in mass. Oh, wow. So I don't, I, yeah, I don't see at all that that is indicative of, of any plan to suddenly uh, bring Kosovo and, and Serbia into the EU and, and Kosovo into the UN. It's not going to happen. And, and first of all, Kosovo can't come into the UN without Russia's say-so. And Russia would only agree to that if Serbia did. So it's not going to happen. They have to veto on it. Let me ask you this. The effects of the missile strikes in Ukraine. Um, it, it seems that the energy system is being decimated at this point. And the idea, you know, people freezing to death in the winter and everything else. And, you know, this wasn't something that was initially happening in the beginning. Like, is that Russia went in basically soft and basically gave a pass 
Okay, but it was happening. The Kiev regime has been doing that to the Donetsk for the last eight years, yes. though. So yes, exactly. It has been happening, but just on one side. Right. Like I said, Russia went in soft on, on this very specific yes, point. Russia went in soft. But from this point on, I mean, what is the effect of this going to be? And there, I mean, there's even talk about um, basically evacuating Kiev. I mean, you're talking about millions of people basically being evacuated. Is is there any truth to this? I mean, is this really what these guys are thinking about? Okay, so let me let me address the last point first. Uh, that's just PR noise, right? That's that's just Infowars stuff. They're not going to evacuate Kiev of civilians. That's that's just a play for sympathy uh, from from Western governments and to keep kind of a threat. Oh my God, there could be two to three million more Ukrainian refugees, you know, in your towns tomorrow, right? It's not going to happen. Um, and they don't have the capacity and they're certainly not going to evacuate their capital city. Um, if, if they keep power and energy on anywhere in the country at whatever other cost, it will be in, in Kiev. Um, and again, a lot of this is, is about sympathy and it wasn't Russia that started this conflict, uh, attacking energy supplies uh, and other vital things. The Kiev regime did. They've been attacking electricity supplies and, and water in the Donbass region for the last eight years. They cut off the flow of water to the Crimea to punish the people there collectively for choosing wrong. Great winning hearts and minds strategy, <laughs> by the way. They'll, they'll really want to rejoin Kiev, uh, you know, if we deprive them of, of water, right? Yeah. Um, as, water you know, uh, so they built a dam to stop the flow of water, right? A, a crime against humanity. But, you know, you wouldn't know that the Western media is like, uh, yeah, that's great because they're pro-Russians, so they deserve not to have yes. water, right? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the general sentiment we've heard from the Western media. Um, and uh, f- since February... Uh, the Kiev regime has regularly been shelling into what you want to call, I guess, mainland Russia, Russia that, that wasn't previously part of Ukraine and Belgorod right across from Kharkov. Um, and they were attacked. They were shelling the electricity supplies there and gloating uh, for, uh, you know, several times that they managed to put out the electricity there in local uh, local areas. You know, nothing huge. But and, and that was all OK. Right. But when suddenly Russia starts doing the same thing, of course, doing it on a much larger scale, suddenly, oh, my God, it's terrible. It's not allowed. Um, So uh, as to the effectiveness, at this point, it seems that some 50 to 60 percent of the Kiev regimes of Ukraine's electricity network, at least in the areas they control, has been disabled. And there's there's. It was a very robust Soviet-built system, right? Multiple redundancies, you know, uh, crazy. Uh, But uh, if we see a a continuation for another four to six weeks of what we have seen previously, they will have very limited power left in the country. And already they've had a lot of problems. And the big reason they're doing this is military logistics, because – Everything in Ukraine, right? All the, the everything they move around the country uh, for military logistics, whether we're talking troops or tanks or vehicles or fuel or artillery shells, ammunition, whatever, it's all done on trains, and the trains are powered by electricity. You take out the electricity, uh, you uh, really inhibit the ability to get military stuff from point A to point B in what is a pretty large country in Europe, right? 
Uh, so um, the result of that is that this is a, one of the major reasons why the Kiev regime's offensives have stalled for about a month now, because they simply couldn't get the supplies to the fronts in the quantities uh, uh, in the places that they needed uh, to. Now it appears that they may have finally agglomerated enough in the Harrison direction, but they're still going to have problems and look for Russia to continue this perhaps a bit more surgically. You know, they'll take a few, uh, you know, transformer substations out. They're, again, they're not really uh, aiming. They certainly haven't targeted any of the Kiev regime's remaining nuclear plants in West Ukraine, nothing like that. But they've been going after transformer substations, which are something that Kiev regime is losing the ability to repair, but that is not a, a damage that can never be repaired, right? Uh, but for the next couple of years, if the conflict continues, yeah, very soon they won't have the ability to repair these things and, and look for that to continue. Uh, you know, uh, they'll take a few shots, assess the damage done, the repairs that have been made, and then, and then take a few more and, and watch for that on a low scale. Mark, last question before we close out. The, there's a visit. The Xi Jinping is planning on visiting um, Saudi Arabia. And I'm fascinated by this. I mean, right off the bat, you have Russia with BRICS or OPEC Plus and what took place on with that. But with the decision ping going to Saudi Arabia, I get the feeling that this is about the petrodollar on some level. I mean, they've been dumping billions, like hundreds of billions of dollars into Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia even floated this idea of the petro yuan. Um, is this, Themselves. Right. Is this one of those things where they're trying to come up with a basket of currencies? And while the U.S. is so focused on Ukraine, it's kind of missing this kind of larger game plan of this kind of second economic order, but this also this kind of pinpoint at the direct um, dollar itself with the petrodollar. Yeah. So um, a lot was made of Trump, like alienating U.S. allies, particularly in Europe, uh, NATO during his administration. It is amazing to the extent that Biden has alienated other U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia and, and Turkey. Uh, maybe to a lesser extent, Turkey, but crazy Saudi Arabia, which has been geopolitically military aligned with the U.S., you know, the, the whole petrodollar for decades since oil was discovered. Oil was and right now they're they're open hostility, insults. I mean, there's a huge personal animosity between Mohammed bin Bonsa. I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> Mohammed bin Salman, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. My, my, my bad. Um, and and Joe Biden. Um, and it's it's simply uh, it, it is amazing. Uh, it is it is such a geopolitical catastrophe for the U.S. Um, you know, I mean, no one's going to say that very few people are going to say, oh, I love the political regime in Saudi oh, Arabia, but they're, they're important. And, and if you have a realist view of foreign policy, I look at the way Russia and China have been very quietly courting Saudi Arabia. Um, even as, uh, you know, Joe Biden, the, the, the whole U.S. relationship. Now, if Joe Biden leaves, could Saudi Arabia come back into the fold? Maybe. But Mohammed bin Salman is young, right? And he's a little bit hot-headed. He's going to remember. And when he takes personal slights, there may not be a quick coming back. This could be something that lasts for decades. And Saudi Arabia joined the Shanghai Cooperation yep. Organization as a dialogue partner. They've applied to join BRICS. They're buying a huge amount of oil 
refined oil from Russia, using it for domestic purposes and then selling their own crude onto the West for a big markup instead of cutting prices. Instead of uh, uh, um, uh, cutting oil prices, they raised them and then hiked them even more specifically for the U.S. And they're just giving Biden and the Democrats the big finger and actively, I think, in a way, trying to interfere in the U.S. elections. Democrats had hoped that a cut in uh, a raise in production, which would cut prices, would um, help the Democrats aims right for the congressional elections and they thought they had a deal that way. Well, to and last Biden New York tried. Times. Yeah, Biden right. tried to get it to go a he month. Tried. Right. He wanted to yeah, go until and, the midterms. And Mohammed bin Salman said, ha nope, ha. You know, do it. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and so they did the opposite. And now, I mean, there's calls all across Washington. Saudi must be punished. <laughs> uh, we have to, you know, remove military aid, support for Yemen and everything. Of course, nothing has actually happened because they, they can't risk geopolitically alienating it. But. I think Mohammed bin Salman had better sleep with one eye open because hell hath no fury like the hegemon scorn. Yeah. And something like a color revolution, a uh, palace coup by other Saudi royal uh, uh, family members that may have not liked the way the chain of succession turned out that MBS is taking the, the throne after his father when there's many other ways that could have gone. Uh, he... He is it's a it's a real uh, potential geopolitical pivot point. Let's see where it goes. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, just the way the world is breaking down with the Ukraine issue. It's fascinating. Mark, thank you, my man. Always appreciate you you joining us. Mark Sloboda is an international relations and security analyst. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Sloboda one. Definitely check out his new YouTube channel at RealPolitik with Mark Sloboda. Excellent channel. You can find him on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Ramshi. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. We're also joined with Milik Abdul. He is our election expert, and he knows his stuff more than pretty much anybody that I've you know, come across. Speaking of, and I'm going to send it to you guys after the show, so I don't know if you've seen the TikTok videos no. of the Democrats. Uh, I don't do TikTok. TikTok videos? So Stacey I'm not cool. Abrams, Tim Ryan, who's running for senator in Ohio. Uh-huh. Beto O'Rourke. Beto! Oh, wow. Yes, Beto. Beto. Robert. <laughs> right, Robert. They, I'm not giving him that, mix, that no. Hispanic stuff trying here. to act like so he's a Hispanic. they're literally doing TikTok dances. I, I really? Soldier Boy. Soldier Boy the rapper. They're doing, they're dancing to Soldier Boy. Uh, God, which, this is so desperate. Soldier Boy telling Pretty Boy Swag. This is so desperate. Oh, they're dancing to, and you should see, now Stacey Abrams, you would think is that she, she, she had a little more rhythm. Is she making it pop? <laughs> no. She's not making it pop? She has no rhythm. She has no rhythm? Beto. Beto, can you get down? like 
premier white guy. Oh, no. <laughs> I have to say, well, look, I put it this way: it's it better. It's so terrible. It's better than him getting that dental thing. Do you remember oh, that video yes. he did? With his, oh, like it was him. so gross. Like, here's me at the dentist. Yeah, and he, his mouth is open, and they're like putting the thing in his mouth, and he's and it's like, why are you? Because that was a So that was, it was a, weird. Why are you so it was us? a thing because of ALC. ALC was able to have those almost like these things because yes. she was been cooking. Mm-hmm. Well, she was but just not being for tea. not no. for tea. So like, it was a TikTok trending thing. <laughs> but no, it trended on TikTok where guys, where people were showing themselves at the dentist. It was a t- it was it a, was t- a thing. It was a well, trend. I'm so glad I'm not into trendy stuff because if that's the trend, because I don't want that. I'm gonna send it to you. Yes. You're gonna flip it. It's, I mean, it's like me it drooling. It is terrible. Here's me high on laughing gas. Yeah. Saying crazy stuff. And so in the song, pretty boy swag. And now they're twerking. And they're dancing. No, it's not even, they're, you have to see it. I, it's, but there's it's a, hard to. There's a politician dance, right? Because you can't really like make it Cut pop. Loose. Like Stacey can't really make it pop. I mean, maybe she's got rhythm, but you can't it really do just, that. It yeah. was not very. Awful. It looks bad. Yeah. It was just awful. Like, and you, it wasn't even, really, they mocked Trump. I mean. Uh-huh. Remember right, Trump I remember that. that. <laughs> right. He's an old right. man. But like when he was on SNL doing the Drake, right? But like, but do you really want to see your politicians getting down, twerking? If they do it, they better do it. Rain. They have Gen Z staffers. And so this is it's a Gen oh, Z sort yeah. of thing. So they're trying to be hip and young. But just stay in your lane. Yeah, no, this is a what? level of pandering that I don't need. I don't know about down in Georgia for Stacey. But um, I forget which state, but they've they've already had 15 percent uh, Gen Z voter turnout really? in, in early elections. That, so wow, that usually doesn't happen. That, that never that, happens. Especially yeah, not for the young folks. The other numbers are. Yeah, yeah. I forget which state. But that, I'll get to some. But it's it, it's a it's it's a good contest. I don't. It's remember. probably Georgia. I, I mean, because Georgia's Georgia, like maybe the, it's Pennsylvania. But one of these good yeah. contests, one of these good races. 15% already 15% in. 15% youth, youth vote. I wow. can see that in Georgia. Wow. That's pretty intense. How much already? it is over the usual percentage, yes. I don't know. Yeah, because the youth vote usually is like flaky. one, like a single digit. Yeah, it's usually very flaky in regards yeah, to, very, you know, how to. Sanders tried to depend on the youth vote. His, his thing was like, I'm going to get all of these young nope. people out. Yeah. It didn't, it it didn't, yeah, it never worked that way. But right, I'll, let's, I'll get to some domestic news and speaking well, of. Well, you're doing that. Oh, nine o'clock. I'm going into the. It's like, let me go into the best thing. It's like, wait. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Oh, it's tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No worries, no worries. JT, you got this. In the news, former U.S. President Donald Trump said during a rally at the state of Ohio that he will make a big announcement, quote unquote, on November 15th at his Mar-a-Lago residence in Florida. Quote, I'm going to be making a very big announcement on Tuesday, November 15th at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida. Unquote. Trump said on Monday night, quote, we want nothing to detract from the importance of tomorrow, unquote. Ahead of the Monday rally, insiders claim that the former commander-in-chief will be announcing his candidacy for the 2024 election. He's going to do it bigly. 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 He's going to bring out the golden escalator and just ride down the golden He's escalator. Got a mobile one? Yeah. <laughs> You're just going to take it with him. Um, Twitter chief Elon Musk has recommended, quote unquote, voting for Republican congressional candidates in November 8th midterm elections in the United States, quote, to independent minded voters, shared power curbs the worst excesses of both parties. Greatly disagree with us. Therefore, I recommend voting for Republican Congress, given that the presidency is democratic, unquote, Musk said via social media. Look, do that if you don't want to get anything done. 
Um, I am not one of those people who believe in divided Congresses because I get annoyed when nothing gets done. Musk said that, quote, hardcore, unquote, Democrats and Republicans are unlikely to vote for the other party, prompting him to make the plea to independent voters in particular. Independent voters are the group who, quote, actually, unquote, decide election outcomes. The entrepreneur added. That part is true. That part is very true. But in other countries, you get a parliament and that parliament basically has a, a party that can basically form a coalition government in order to get stuff done. The U.S. is weird in this case because we don't get anything done and you need this kind of supermajority just to get anything done or for that matter, budget reconciliation. This is a broken Congress in the way that this actually works. The Senate is already a minority body, which means you don't necessarily need to filibuster added to it to make it that much more of a minority body. That secondary conversation, I suppose. But fair enough, let's keep going. Billionaire George Soros, oh, one more thing. The rich love it when nothing gets done because it basically instantiates the system that is already here. Billionaire George Soros topped the list of individual political donors for 2021-2022, contributing more than $128.4 million. $128.4 million to Democrats. According to data for the Nonpartisan Election Foundation or funding tracker, Open Secrets, Soros, head of Soros Fund Management, contributed a total of $128,475,971 to Democrats for the annual period and no money to Republicans, Open Secrets said on Monday. Over the $126.75 million was outside money, according to the data. The second biggest contributor was Richard Ulan of Ulan Inc., who gave $80,692,168 to Republicans, according to Open Secrets. They also said the National Association of Realtors, NAR, topped the list of political action committee contributors for the annual period, giving $1,656,500 to Democrats and $1,681,500 to Republicans. You juice the wheels on both ends, regardless of who gets in office. You can get an entry or an invite into the room. Let's keep going. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said during a think tank event that the U.S. officials recently had an opportunity to engage with Russian government at senior levels to reduce the risks and convey the consequences of potential use of nuclear weapons to Ukraine. American media reported that Sullivan had been conducting confidential talks in recent months with Kremlin aide Yuri, I think this is Yukolov, um, the Russian Security Council Secretary Nikolai Khrushchev. The Kremlin and the White House declined to confirm that such talks took place. Quote, we in the Biden administration have had the opportunity to engage in senior levels with Russia to communicate, to reduce the risk, to convey the consequences of potential use of nuclear weapons, unquote. Sullivan said on Monday when asked about his reported talks with Russian officials, quote, we have not described the channels that we have done in order to protect those channels, unquote. Let's keep going. U.S. law, by the way. I suspect that those talks had less to do with the nuclear weapon stuff, because I don't believe that the United States believes that at all. Regardless of the propaganda that they put out, they know full well that a small expeditionary force that was literally limited by law um, into a special military operation was able to take 20% of the territory working with dumbass militias. The idea that you need to go from that to nuclear weapons is absurd. And you only can even make the case in a fully propagandized society itself in order to even accept that without basically laughing and snickering on the side when you basically read it. I suspect a lot of those talks came in this notion of how do we save face? And if you guys can take Hairson, at the very least, we can come to some kind of negotiating table with a win on the belt in order to extricate ourselves from this situation, considering the protests that are taking place now in Europe and this, quote, Ukraine fatigue that the Washington Post was talking about. I strongly suspect that a lot of this has to do with domestic policy. We don't typically care 
about what other nations think about us. Um, we do care on some level about domestic policy. And if you get the Republican Party, who's basically now bringing up skepticism about this, you're getting Donald Trump, who would probably be skeptical about this and attack Joe Biden on this very particular front. You get lefties who are putting out sheepishly, sheepishly, tepidly putting out, hey, maybe we should consider peace talks. Then, yeah, there's a bit of pressure, I suspect, that the administration is feeling at this moment, not to mention you're dealing with the nuclear power. Nuclear weapons? probably the least on that list, but I could be wrong. Let's keep going. U.S. law enforcement agencies have not identified any credible threats related to midterm elections this week. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said on Monday, quote, law enforcement has briefed us that there are no specific credible threats identified at this point, unquote. Jean-Pierre remarked during her Monday briefing when asked whether there was a chance of a repeated January 6th event after Tuesday midterms. Why would there be a January... Quote, President Joe Biden has been briefed on the threat environment directed that all appropriate steps to be taken to ensure a safe and secure election occurs. Why would that be? Donald Trump is not running for office. There's no president running for office. And the Republicans are going to win in a red wave. So wait, Republicans take it and raid the Capitol? Who does this sound like? This sounds like Russia. Yeah. Rus- Russia's sabotaging its own self. How weird is this? Oh, thanks for that. How weird is that? Republicans are going to take the House by far, probably take the Senate. And then destroy things. And then destroy things. They're still going to raid the Capitol after. They're not going to be satisfied with taking the House or the Senate. Are you serious? Are you serious right now? Let's keep going. The U.S. government is drafting a resolution for the U.N. Security Council to increase sanctions pressure on North Korea and is considering deploying an aircraft carrier to the Sea of Japan should North Korea conduct a nuclear test, the Japanese media reported, citing sources. In particular, the draft resolution may include restrictions on the export of oil and oil imports from North Korea as well as sanctions against the Lazarus Hacker Group, which is allegedly allegedly associated with North Korean regime. In addition, it is not ruled out that if the draft resolution is not appropriate, the United States, Japan, and South Korea would impose unilateral sanctions against North Korea. What about just talking to them? What about just talking to them? What about just stopping the missile tests on the side of their borders or the decapitation potential strikes that you're basically pretending that you're doing and having a conversation? Donald Trump is proof of concept. You can call him Satan, whatever you want to call him. He's proof of concept that talking works. Let's keep going. More than a quarter of Europeans say they are in a precarious financial state and half feel they soon will be, according to the new poll. The Six Nations survey by Ipsos for French poverty NGO scores populaire found that 27% were in financial dire straits defined as one expected expenditure could change everything, quote unquote. While 55%, they had to be very careful with spending to avoid getting into the same position. It also found that 54% of 6,000 people polled in France, Germany, Greece, Italy, Poland, and UK had seen purchasing power of their income fall over the past three years. Well, yeah, the euro's fallen through the floor. Almost nine out of 10 cited rising prices for fuel, heat, food, and rent now going through the roof thanks to Western sanctions on Russia over its military operation in Ukraine as a reason for their declining prosperity. Three in 10 said rising taxes had contributed to their predicament. Wow, welfare states in Europe are now having difficulties. Um, Chinese President Xi Jinping is expected to visit Saudi Arabia before the end of 2022, according to U.S. media. Sino-Saudi trade has steadily increased since the established relations in 1990, with China buying 27% of Saudi oil exports last year. At the end of 2021, annual bilateral trade amounted to $87.31 billion. Between January and August 2022, Saudi Aramco delivered an average of 1.76 million barrels per day of petroleum to China. Riyadh has long supported China's position on key issues, including its sovereignty over Taiwan and its de-radicalization policies of Xinjiang. Speaking at the speaking with the foreign minister Faisal bin 
Baran Al Saud of Saudi Arabia last month, Chinese Foreign Minister and State Conciliar Wang Li told reporters that Beijing, quote, attaches great importance to develop relations with Saudi Arabia, taking Saudi Arabia as a priority in its overall diplomacy, its Middle Eastern diplomacy in particular, unquote. Look, we better pay attention to this. I mean, I get the Biden administration doesn't like Saudi Arabia, but the petrodollar is not insignificant in regards to the way that it allows the dollar to have a certain level of hegemony around the globe. I could be wrong, but I suspect that the close the relationship where Saudi Arabia is getting closer to either BRICS, Shanghai Cooperation Meeting between Russia and China, if these guys come up with a basket currency and dollar becomes under pressure, what does that mean financially for the U.S.? That is $30 trillion in debt. That is not something that we should take all that lightly. And this idea that Biden believes he can go it alone is not saying rah, rah, bone saw. Not saying that. I'm saying that as a leader, you have, let's say, priorities that you need to pay attention to that can have long lasting consequences later on. Let's keep going. Quote, Algeria has made an official application to join BRICS, unquote. Media reported, citing foreign ministry spokesperson or special envoy, Leah, I think this is Zeruki. Yeah, okay, I'll go with that. This comes after Iran and Argentina earlier this year also announced they were seeking membership in the group. Moreover, BRICS International Forum President Purina Anad noted that Turkey, or Turkey, Egypt and Saudi Arabia may, quote, very soon, unquote, follow them in applying. This day in history, in 2002, Iraq disarmament crisis, UN Security Council under Resolution 1441 unanimously approves the resolution on Iraq, forcing Saddam Hussein to disarm or face serious consequences. And like Manila said, we know how that turned out. Um, in 2005, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf is elected president of Liberia, the first woman to lead an African country. Good for her. In 2016, Republican Donald Trump is elected the 45th president of the United States of America, defeating beating the stuffing out of Democrat Hillary Clinton with an Electoral College victory of 304 to 227. Clinton received just under 2.9 million votes of the popular vote, which does not elect our leader. And that is basically based almost entirely in California. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. All right, we're going to go to the break. We're going to come back. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Malik Abdul and Manila Chan coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what all of us are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share the audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Definitely don't be shy. We would definitely try to get to you at 8. 45. But I want to bring in our guests. We have Dr. Karen Kniesel. She's an Austrian diplomat, journalist. Karen. Karen. What did, I, what did I say? Karen. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean Karen. Karen um, Kniesel. She's an Austrian diplomat, journalist, and independent politician, having served as Minister of Foreign Affairs between 2017 and 2019. She's an expert on Middle East and was a lecturer before assuming the government position. Dr. Kniesel. Kniesel. Welcome to the show. Kneisel, yeah. Welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Thank you very much. Uh, yes, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Good morning to you from Lebanon. Excellent. Wow. Long distance. Um, so we are bringing you on to have a conversation about 
I guess some of everything, European politics in addition to the American elections. Um, I want Give me your just a wide ranging point of view from the standpoint of Europe and what Europe is going through right now in regards to the gas crisis that it's basically dealing with. Have they come up with any, let's say, legitimate plan in order to deal with this either this year or even going into the next year? Excuse me, I, I didn't really get now the, the, the essence of the question. It was a rather long question. What, what's the exact question you wanted to ask me? Well, I'm asking you, what is the situation in Europe right now dealing with the way that they're dealing with the gas prices, whether it's inflation or for that matter, energy costs? Depends really on, on, on the member state of the European Union you're talking about, because uh, not every EU member is hit to the same extent. It depends on uh, on the energy mix. And when you take uh, the number one uh, EU industrial uh, exporting country, Germany, yeah. and those countries which uh, depend a lot on, on, on the German automotive industry, which work in the, in the supply chains, such as Austria, Slovenia, several other uh, Central European countries countries, they are quite harshly hit by the self-imposed oil and gas embargo. This this is a fact. And we have seen uh, galloping electricity prices in the first row, because uh, before we can even start speaking about a gas crisis and uh, the whole debate about freezing in winter, it already started as an electricity price hike crisis in spring, summer, depending really on which country you speak, because in Spain, the situation is completely different, speaking energy mix and how the government manages it with regard to Germany or, or other countries, Scandinavians. Well, I can uh, just give you the figures for Germany and Austria, for instance. Here, we the, the domestic household and the industry both are facing uh, about... Uh, 300% price rise in the electricity bills uh, because uh, you have a lot of uh, electricity production that is gas powered. And this has already had an impact. Uh, you see major industrial uh, companies in Germany closing down in the petrochemical segment, but also supply chain for the automotive industry. So the households are affected, uh, but also the industry, of course. Wow. I'm curious how. Considering that each of the countries have somewhat of a different, let's say, window of potential damage that they're dealing with, how are they working together? Do you have an expectation that these countries are going to be able to work together considering they have different, let's say, needs or let's say a different... Um, different goals. Yeah, they have different goals. So they have... Uh, what is the word I'm looking for? They have different yeah, well, uh, vulnerabilities yeah. to the energy markets. This is a crucial question because... Uh, in theory, uh, we have uh, a united, um, interconnected European electricity market that starts uh, in Turkey and that finishes in Morocco. This is one gas market uh, that is transnational by nature because uh, uh, electricity pipes, of course, they don't respect now uh, regional or national borders. So this is one uh, coherent, interconnected electricity market. And uh, the, the the idea to, uh, to to help each other out in terms of solidarity when the electricity pressure goes down here or there is limited because it's all about also saving uh, your own grid, which you can do by uh, turning it, uh, so to say, to, to create electricity islands. This has happened before when there was the risk of blackout because of the German energy transition. Um, and uh, when there was not enough uh, sun or wind-powered electricity, importing electricity from neighboring countries, 
that can uh, th that has been happening, of course, in the past. But uh, I'm wondering whether this was to be handled to the same extent uh, in the immediate future, due to the fact that uh, each and every one is hit by shortages and is hit by the risk of uh, uh, of uh, lasting power cuts, which uh, are defined as blackouts. Uh, so solidarity is not really very, very strong. And also uh, each government is somehow trying to, uh, to purchase uh, gas and oil supply on its own. When we take, for instance, uh, uh, the previous Italian government traveling to Algeria a few months ago and then followed by a visit of the French president uh, who only came there to find out that uh, the contracts had already been uh, purchased by his neighbors, the Italians. So th this is the situation in a nutshell. Now, Dr. Kneisel, uh, good to speak with you again, by the way. Uh, COP27 is happening now in Egypt. And this is obviously the UN uh, climate change discussion that happens every year. How is Germany going to respond? And, and you know, given the fact that they have gone back to uh, restarting their nuclear energy plants, they have gone to collecting wood, and uh, coal is also being brought back up for ener to meet energy needs in Europe. Do you expect anybody at the COP27 uh, to push back or give Germany a rebuke for restarting nuclear? Uh, yes, it's a hot debate in, in Germany. It's not really about restarting nuclear, but it's about not shutting off uh, the last three remaining nuclear reactors. This this is the big thing. And now the social democrat, liberal, green government, it's a three-party coalition. They have uh, somehow had a, reached a compromise to keep at least uh, three nuclear reactors still online and not to shut them off uh, before the end of the year. But to re-enter nuclear I don't think that uh, in the German public opinion and definitely not in the coalition government where the Green Party is the number two, that you will have a real renaissance of the nuclear, like we have seen it in uh, in Finland or in, in some other countries, Italy. Uh, but uh, also the, for France, which uh, in principle can cover... 80% of its electricity consumption via nuclear power production. France is facing right now also numerous issues. Uh, one is the maintenance work, which were not well done or which were somehow omitted during the pandemic. Uh, you can see, you can say roughly speaking, uh, about half of the 56, 58 nuclear power plants are currently uh, out of work, uh, they are under revision, and they are old. Uh, there has also been not uh, any kind of, of, of uh, solid investment because one of the previous governments under President François Hollande uh, actually announced phasing out of the nuclear. Uh, so to, to, to sum the whole thing up, I have been a critic over the last 10 years, I repeatedly said, Unfortunately, within the European Union, uh, we only had, for the last decade at least, uh, only a climate transition policy. Climate change was the number one priority. Um, and there was very little attention and uh, quasi no investment dedicated to a real um, security in supply policy. I mean, above all, you have to provide 
your consumer, whether it's a household or the industry, with a steady flow of affordable energy, whether it's electricity, gas, or whatever. And this has been completely omitted. So what we can see right now is a kind of uh, very hectic uh, running around, uh, trying to purchase uh, oil, gas, whatever you can here and there, thereby forgetting completely that in order to transport oil or gas, you need ships. <laughs> and the shipping uh, industry is also really busy. I mean, you you don't you can't just find book a vessel like that. You know, it's 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 not an it's not an excursion boat. And uh, the, these things are completely underestimated. And uh, I have been teaching the topic for the last 20 years, and I was really often struck by the ignorance of high-ranking officials, uh, people who are in the so-called decision-shaping circles, who prepare briefing notes, who prepare pieces of legislation. Their ignorance uh, when it comes to a very basic topic, such as energy supply for for your country and uh, it's uh, it, it, it's a very dramatic situation i would say because uh, it's it, it's it's much more dramatic than anything that had to do with the pandemic wars where we could also see that many state administrations failed yeah i, hey, I Dr. don't i don't think we're getting to net zero in 2030 <laughs> no. Dr. <Kniso. laughs> i don't see it no <laughs> dr kanaiso thank you so much for joining fault lines again it was a fascinating discussion to to use jamal's words it was a fascinating discussion with you last week and i we manila and i were talking about how we appreciate you being a professor so coming from that angle i wanted to ask your thoughts on this um over the past several months now we've been seeing protests from prague and even most recently to paris um uh, factions aligned with Melancon. A lot of the things that they were protesting, economic anxiety, um, as we were talking about the energy crisis, we're seeing a similar thing happening here in the United States. Although we're not seeing the protests, there's a lot of economic anxiety built into our midterm elections, which of course is today. Today is actually um, our election day here. Um, what are your thoughts on, let's just say, you know, Republicans taking back power? Obviously, it seems as if Republicans will definitely take back the House. The question is whether we'll take back the Senate. But what do you think of, you know, if you had any thoughts on um, the midterm elections, particularly around what happens if Republicans win, do you expect anything to change as far as the support for um, U.S. support for Ukraine? Well, when it comes to foreign policy files, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's China, the so-called chip ban and many other files, I don't think that there will be huge changes um, because uh, we, we have seen it in the transition also from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. Uh, the foreign policy uh, files remain rather constant. I mean, on China, everybody agreed, yes, Trump had done the right thing and he had been antagonizing China. And yes, we have to uh, to become less vulnerable and uh, less dependent on China. So this topic is, is very much with both parties. And I think on that uh, path, they will continue also within a Republican-dominated Congress. When it comes to Ukraine, I think that... Uh, First of all, we have to bear in mind also the role of, of the Ukrainian diaspora that has always uh, had its hand in formulating uh, legislative pieces. I mean, if I remember that uh, uh, when Nord Stream 2, when it was still a project and not yet uh, about to be uh, put uh, operative, 
Uh, we had Republicans, senators, Republican congressmen and women who were very much against um, uh, North Stream. So it was not only a Democrat topic, it was a Republican topic. And uh, that um, was definitely nurtured uh, also by an, a Ukrainian diaspora that has always had its its role to play on the hill. Also, when we look back to, to the 1970s, uh, Cold War disarmament topics, how to deal with the Soviet Union, uh, the Helsinki Final Act 1975. I've written about that many years ago. And apparently um, the then U.S. President Gerald Ford was very much under pressure and Henry Kissinger before him were under pressure um, not to not to join that uh, disarmament project uh, because there were certain lobby groups on the Hill who, who disliked it. So uh, the, the, you see this this. Lobby groups, they, they are there, whoever is now uh, dominating Congress or the Senate. And that's why I believe there won't be tremendous changes when it comes to Ukraine. But one thing that could maybe feed into the whole situation is that uh, there's a fatigue in terms of supporting Ukraine with billions, whether it's in military aid or in financial aid. Uh, because there is a growing need among uh, uh, U.S. households, families uh, to deal with high prices. And uh, one of the consequences of the self-imposed embargoes on oil and gas is, of course, also a, a, an oil price crisis in the U.S., which hits the average customer. And uh, President Biden, uh, long before the war, namely in, in autumn 2021, already started opening up the so-called strategic petroleum reserve in order to bring more uh, oil to the market, so to confront uh, inflation. But uh, despite the fact that there has been uh, a kind of manipulation by the U.S. government of the oil market in the U.S., uh, it really didn't bring the price down. Uh, and um, on, on that topic, I could imagine that there might be some changes. How they will materialize, I have no idea. But there's a malaise growing all over the world uh, with, uh, with inflation, with price hikes, which decline in purchasing power. And these, uh, these are always topics important for, for the average citizen who might say, well, this is not my war. I just want to pay my bills. Yeah, but... Extremely good point. <laughs> Extremely good point. Um, and, and yeah, it's a, you know, all things being equal, I think people just want to live their lives. And all of a sudden you have this kind of increase in the amount of gas, increase in the amount of food, et cetera. Um, from the standpoint, I want to move back to Europe for one second. The Germany is supposed to be investing, what, like $100 billion or into the country, maybe more. I, the figure eludes me at the moment. Um, if I'm not mistaken, France was supposed to be investing a certain amount. And all of this is basically to try to deal with the rising costs of energy, food, et cetera. But there were complaints within Europe over this. Why are the complaints in Europe over this? Is it just because certain countries can afford it and other countries can't? And there was even complaints coming from Europe at the United States over the Inflation Reduction Act with Schultz and Macron basically saying they were going to unite in order to push back against the United States passing its own Inflation Reduction Act. Explain this to me. Is it just that there's the idea that in Europe you're not supposed to be able to spend that much on your domestic economies? Well, 
You see, I mean, the, the, there's a lot of talk about a united response, a coordinated effort uh, to uh, to deal with all the the, the, the effects, the impacts of uh, having imposed an embargo on importing commodities from the Russian Federation, whether it's oil, gas, coal, of course, also certain metals now. But it's a uh, it's easy to talk about a coordinated response and still then in the end uh, uh, many governments uh, will try to 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 do it uh, by other means uh, because uh, they uh, they would like to to save their balance uh, sheets uh, this, this this is definitely one one topic and um the the most crucial rift is currently uh between uh the US, the EU and the US that again uh even the French president who who has ha- had a quite a uh vast educational background uh, he, I, I'm under the impression that he also doesn't really understand supply and demand and the ensuing market forces because a few weeks ago he was complaining in public uh, about the unfair prices uh, by the U.S. for their LNG production. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, nobody sets the price, you know. This is completely misunderstood. There is no price setting. These prices are made up uh, by a, a artificially tightened market, embargoes against Russia, and uh, the demand is still there. I mean, we are not yet in the huge recession. Maybe in a year from now, we will have a wide recession and then the demand will go down and maybe then also the prices will go down due to the recession. But until then, I think we will have to fight uh, many other issues uh, in terms of social peace and so on. But uh, when it comes to the situation also of coordinated response within the European Union, we can see that Paris and Berlin are, are not really coordinating uh, their, their responses or have a different definition of, of the response. And uh, so, the yeah, there the, the is... There's not such a harmonious uh, approach uh, to to the issue of uh, how to confront uh, the Russian Federation, how to respond to the uh, energy question, all that ensuing uh, from the war in, in Ukraine. You know, I'm curious, if Angela Merkel was still in power, how would this be different? Uh, how should I say? I mean, uh, it's 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 a speculative retrospect. Right yeah, imagining it's Angela about um, Angela Merkel had the the certain advantage that she she knew all the mechanisms, she knew all the people for about uh, 16, 70 years. So she was that was definitely an advantage that currently. Her successes, of course, they can't have it. Even so, Scholz was vice chancellor for many years. He's not a complete greenhorn. And I mean, but I I don't think that Angela Merkel now would be a a big uh, game changer because if she really were, you could always bring her in as a mediator. But I don't think that anybody is really, or maybe also she herself doesn't want to do it. I, I have no idea. But I don't think that uh, she would really be a big game changer. This the situation, as I see it, and if we go back uh, with our audience to the beginning of the year, there was no er, serious diplomatic effort to really tackle the situation in a different way. There was a there, there was a very hectic 
traveling to Moscow, but uh, everybody repeated uh, his uh, tweets or her tweets, you know, it was not real diplomacy. And uh, this was, this, this had nothing to do with trust building that had nothing to do with how can we tackle that issue in, 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 in the long run that led uh, to, to, to a situation, at least of many misunderstandings, maybe, uh, in, in in terms of going to the battlefield. I think that uh, you have to bring back some sort of respectful technical communication. I don't think that uh, we will be able in the near future to see a huge political diplomatic breakthrough, but it would already be very helpful for everybody involved if there were a more persistent technical communication. And as far as I may judge as a far distant observer, I think something like that has been started. Uh, It's uh, uh, Mr. Sullivan, the national security advisor, who is not a heavyweight in the U.S. administration. But yeah, but 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 I mean, he's you will not send now heavyweights, you know. You you send now no more the people who can do some technical communication, and this I believe is something that that at least is better than doing nothing or than just or than just attacking each other via the megaphone. What what everybody has been doing, you know. So we will see what comes out of that. But I I I mean anyway. There will be, if something happens on on a more diplomatic note, it will be between Moscow and Washington. It will not be between Moscow and Brussels or Moscow or any other EU capitals, because unfortunately, the European Union has maneuvered itself out of being a a counterpart. And, And honestly, to whom inside the European Union should Moscow speak to? I mean, there's 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 not a counterpart that you can really call a counterpart. The only one that you have and and those who can also make a change by putting leverage on their allies is the US. And uh, this is what most probably uh, will be going on, will be used as a channel. So it's um, we, we are back to, to, to a situation of Moscow versus Washington and, 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 and Europe sitting on the on the sidelines and watching. Dr. Kneisel, I, I know you spent some time here in, in Washington, D.C., uh, in particular, for your studies. So you've seen how this town works. And Donald Trump has been playing with the idea of, you know, announcing his comeback, his run. He's putting this off until next week, until after this week's, today's election is over. We expect him to announce his 2024 run. How do you expect that announcement to impact the global stage and the politics and, and as people, uh, you know, continue the, the, COP, um, the, the COP meeting in Egypt, the G20 is happening next week. He's going to announce right in the middle of it. Do you think that is going to be on the top of everybody's mind when they have these meetings? Yes, I think so, because Donald uh, Trump is somebody... Who, who polarizes? I mean, he he shakes up, and uh, um, we know the majority of commentators and people in power completely underestimated his uh, uh, cap- capability to to be, become a Republican candidate and then to win the presidential elections back in 2016. But 
But he did it, and maybe now people will be a little bit more prepared because as far as I've been following the news uh, in the U.S. over the last two, three years, many opinion leaders said, well, Donald Trump is done and the Republican Party will never again uh, bet on him. But apparently it's just the opposite. I mean, he's still the the locomotive somehow <laughs> that is now pulling the Republican train. And he does that with his, well, the, the way he is, he is dead, Donald, as his late wife, Ivanka, Ivanka used to call him. <laughs> hey, Dr. Knizel, we're, we're bouncing you all over the world, but I had another one for you. She's an international I, lady. I know, dude, you can handle it all. Um, I wanted to ask your thoughts on yesterday, apparently, Netanyahu was meeting with uh, Ben Gavir. And, you know, far right, definitely far-right um, guy. W- what are your thoughts on Netanyahu navigating that relationship with someone like Ben Gavir? And, and we're hearing that he may possibly end up in a cabinet position as well. Well, it's not for the first time that Mr. Netanyahu has uh, or chooses, is ready to work together with uh, coalition partners of that type. I mean, um, to to explain to our audience a little uh, the person we are talking about belongs to the post kahal movement that people who have been cheering massacres against uh, Palestinians who are in favor of uh, kicking out all Palestinians from uh, from the, the occupied territories and so on. So it's, it's something more than, than what we have seen with the... Uh, it's, uh, quite much more than what uh, the party of Mr. Netanyahu Lidli could, which also was never too much in favor of a two-state solution and so on. But when we look back at previous Netanyahu governments, I mean, it would be now his fifth or sixth government. Um, he was uh, entering in coalition with Avigdor Lieberman about 10, 12 years ago, if I correctly remember the time slot. And also Mr. Lieberman uh, was... An, he has changed a little bit now. He's a little bit more moderate than he was uh, a decade ago. But then he was quite uh, an, uh, an outspoken radical of how to treat Palestinians, you know. And uh, so it's it's. I think it's not for the first time. And uh, Netanyahu will handle it, and he will give in, and he will make his concessions in order to to become prime minister again. It's not the the, the first trial that he has to do in that in that sense. Um, last question, um, Dr. Knizel. How did it fall apart? Um, you made the point about this technical communication and how that's necessary in order to basically keep down hostilities or for that matter to even get anything accomplished. And back during the Soviet Union, I get the feeling that there was, not the feeling, there was this kind of ability to communicate between the two sides despite the fact that they were still within the context of a Cold War. Where did it break down from your take? I'm just curious. It's a very good question, and I've given thought to it again and again. I think it has to do with the overall loss in in speaking to each other, in conducting something like a conversation, you know, and not just speaking and uh, uh, reading out speaking notes. I mean, it's it's a very pleasant conversation we are having here, even though we don't see each other, we don't sit in the same room, but we listen to each other, we give each other time and don't interrupt each other. Uh, which is also rare in the media. And in international relations, um, people are gone. And I repeat myself, I think what I mentioned already last week, uh, with, with simple, basic good manners and education and also this human capability 
to put yourself for a few minutes into the shoes of the other. I mean, it has nothing to do with empathy. It has just to do with, I would like to understand uh, the, the the rationale of, uh, of the other side. Why do they act this and that way? And how can I better anticipate my action in order to, to achieve something for, for my agenda? And all that uh, has disappeared. I must say, as somebody who has been teaching the topic for years, I always like to do simulated negotiations with students. Often, the students I've been teaching for at least one term, they were really good negotiators after uh, after I I had somehow trained them into that. While when I arrived to my first uh, Council of Foreign Ministers meeting in Brussels, I was really shocked uh, by the overall... um, level of uh, ignorance and also by the omnipresence of bad manners that people simply don't listen to each other they uh, watch their ipad they they are busy with other things it's it's like in a when you're in a classroom uh, with uh, students who simply don't care about the syllabus about the agenda and it's <laughs> it's 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 a dreadful situation it's a very deplorable situation because uh, the, we, I mean, we we need this readiness uh, to to listen to each other and to have some sort of respect for the other and uh, conduct a decent conversation. Dr. Knaizel, I want to thank you for this. Really appreciated this conversation. She's an Austrian diplomat, journalist, and independent politician, having served as Minister of Foreign Affairs between 2017 and 2019. She's an expert on Middle East and lecturer before assuming the government position. And let's do this. Let's go to calls. The number is 202. 521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. Um, I have to be honest. For me, I think this thing becomes an issue of power. That at the point where one side's, meaning I can negotiate with you if we are on equal terms. But the moment that we're no longer on equal terms, I don't have to negotiate with you. I don't like have You to. win some, lose some. I win some, lose some. Well, it doesn't have to be win-win. Once, win. once the power dynamic, dynamic changes, changes, I don't have to negotiate. It becomes if that. If here. Yeah, then fair enough. Then so if you're the Soviet Union and I'm the United States, there's a mutual assured destruction. You and I have to negotiate in order to make sure things don't fall apart. Yeah, and all I things have nukes, equal. You have nukes. Right, we're Let's equal. Talk. The moment the Soviet Union falls or the moment that we feel like we won, meaning the history is over with. In other words, you have a big head. Yes. Hubris. I don't have to negotiate, in which case you end up in these kind of conflicts because you don't like Kim Jong Un. Great example. Well, we don't have to negotiate with him because we're the he's United li- States. He's little tiny North he's Korea. Li- he's mm-hmm. a tiny rocket man. We don't have to do anything, and so we can dictate terms as opposed to negotiate. I think it becomes that somewhere along the way. And how did that work? How has that worked out for us? <laughs> Not <laughs> well. I mean, but from their stamp, but from right. I think this is gets this kind of hegemonic control that I think the West has where it, from its standpoint, it's existential. I mean, no, not in real terms. The United States is not going to go in two days like Donald Trump. is like, Oh, we can't take two more years. I don't think it's that. <laughs> I do think, though, it, it's at some point along the way we thought we won. Mm-hmm. That's it. History is over with. We won. We can dominate in perpetuity forever. We own the future. We own it. not just one, we were right. Yeah, right. Exactly. we were always right. Yeah, we were right. And so now it's, okay, well, Russia comes up and says, we have security concerns. Well, we don't have to negotiate with you. Why do we have to negotiate with you? We bought into our own Hollywood junk. Yes. I'm I'm from there, right? So I I understand how this, like, trickles deep into the American psyche. Like the psyche, psyche, yeah. We We look at Rocky. We watch Saving Private Ryan which is totally like misconstrued because I think Amer- it totally misrepresents 
the, the facts of World War II that the Soviet Red Army defeated the Germans. In hours from out, what, 90 percent of the Nazis that were basically killed in that war were on were the, the Eastern Soviet, Front. Yeah, the Soviet yeah, Red Army front. did it. When, 26 when million Soviet, Russians died in that war. When the Astonishing. Soviet flag went on the Reichstag, it was a Soviet yes. soldier that put it up there. Yes. And lost a huge amount of casualties in order to put that flag up there. I mean, it is hard to get across but the level of devastation. The impact of Hollywood and like trickling into America the, came the, in and just won the war. Yes, America. <laughs> All right. Yeah, America, baby. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't that's even close. No, that's, that's not, not what happened, what happened in the least. It's like a Zelensky produced movie. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, right. We have callers. Malik, DC. I'm sorry. Malik. 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 It's an A, not an E. Malik. DC, what's going on, man? Doing all right? Doing all right, man. I'd like to, uh, I'm late, but I, I'd like to uh, welcome Manila back. Thank you, Malik. Glad, glad, to have, glad to have you back. I'm just getting back? <laughs> You're <laughs> gone <about> a week. <laughs> I was gone for a Looking week. Looking at bikinis. A week is forever. <laughs> what's going on, man? What's the topic? Well, yeah, as I was, I was saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not a feminist, but I, I am an anti-sexist, and I believe even if we disagree, sisters have to be in the room. Of course. That, that opinion has to be represented. That's right. Thank you, thank you. And I'm, well, I'm, I'm, you know, you guys were discussing the truce, hashtag the truce yesterday. Ah, uh, COVID truce. Oh, right, right. I was trying to, I was like, what? Truce? Yeah, COVID truce. Go for it. I know, right? COVID truce. No, I, and, and no, it was, a, it was a great discussion, a great back and forth. I enjoyed it. What I, I'm in full agreement with you, Manila, on that. I believe there should be no truce. And thank you. Yeah, and I and I think unfortunately, like it, you know, in in all seriousness, I think one of the things that really disturbs me about American culture and political discourse in American culture is that you know, in in many ways, like like several things in the culture, it's it tends to be either dumbed down or trivialized. Um, and and I I think what we just went through cannot be trivialized in any way, shape, or form. Um, I, you know, I, I think, you know, people were forced uh, in order to keep their jobs, forced to take that. And, and, and what, um, you know, whether you disagree with it or not, Jamal, and you and I have. Oh, go for it. Make your point. I, I'm not interrupting. Go for it. Is, is that it's, it's an experimental injection. Even now, Pfizer is admitting that they did not do extensive testing to see whether it prevented transmissibility. That is a huge. That is a very. That is a huge thing, in places like New York, where you know things. You know, uh, they were. You know, introduced things like passports and and. and I tell you, man, I I was going to New York on a regular basis, and I'm telling you, it was it was disturbing. I, I walked. Uh, a friend of mine uh, who took me to a bar, a regular bar of his, and, and restaurant. When we walked in and we, you know, were carded, the look of the faces of the patrons, and because we're two black guys walking in, and largely everyone else who had their passports was largely white. That had nothing to do with your race. And that had to do with the passport. Well, here's the no, 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 but, but no. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. In New York City, it was it was largely understood that. Black people were not getting the not getting the shot, and therefore would not have their key to New York. I know, but that has nothing to do with your race. That's what I'm getting across. Like, because you had Black Lives Matter coming out saying people who that the vaccine was racist, and it's like, are you insane? I mean, look. 
<laughs> go, go for it. Go for it. No, no, no. What I'm saying, I'm just sharing, I am sharing my personal experience with you of how we were treated. We were treated as if we were, we were. Second class citizen. Third class citizens. I mean. Well, Manila said second. You said third. Which one is it? <laughs> <laughs> Y'all got to come up. <laughs> well, Malik, Malik, so my thing, my thing about this was that what we know about the U.S. government is if you give them an inch, they will take 10 miles, not one, 10 miles. So this was the slippery slope of leading us into tyranny and full on controlling every segment of our lives. And that's what bothered me the most. I think that's a bit of an overstatement. <laughs> but uh, but teachers on, teachers on. Um, Malik, anything else? Wait, I, I can hear him there. You know, and I'll, I'll just, uh, in terms of the seriousness with which I think a lot of us are not necessarily taking these things, I don't, I don't get into my personal stuff very often, but, you know, I, I've shared my background. And you guys had your electricity turned off because you are who you are. Uh, and, and, we, and those of us who listen to your, your station, we've, we've heard your, your signal being tampered with. You, we understand you guys can't talk about that because you'll be, you'll be considered tinfoil hat people. We've listened. And, and when, I, when I was posting a lot of this stuff about, uh, about the, um, the doctors who were uh, challenging the narrative, my car was being broken into. I had chemicals placed on my car during that all, that whole lockdown period, you know. So I, I think there's there, Jamal. I think you have to consider there's some there was something more more serious, a more serious objective uh, in all of that that was taking place. And I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Fair enough, Malik. Let your statement stand for itself. Um, Brave, what's going on, man? ATL. Good morning, guys. Hey, Brave. I, I don't I don't understand why there would be a need to. Uh, to make peace like so uh, amongst neighbors of course i don't think there i don't think there should be a thing where you hate your neighbor forever because it's no. <laughs> not really the target right it's not really the point the important thing um goes down to what our government officials were doing and what transpired concerning uh the the um the, the pandemic and not just the pandemic but what they lost the power they were able to take up um using the pandemic as all right, so uh, a few things, because the framing is... Um, Brave, you got 30 seconds. Cool. The framing is bad in the first place, because the fact they're saying that a new one, there were scientists and doctors who were coming out all along saying that certain things were happening and should not have been happening. So, so when they're saying that, oh, the science is new and we didn't know, that's not true. You were shutting down conversation and not allowing this information to be out. The pharmaceutical companies, such as Pfizer, whole hog bought our government, and not just our government, but governments across the world, and forced the narrative, right? Then the media took up the other side of the table. So those things should be those things should be investigated. When you have uh, the UK trying to do a uh, panel and can't get any information on the contract that was signed. Brave, we're going to have to close it. We're coming to the end of the quarter, but appreciate your comment. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan. We got Malik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, 
I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. And of course, we're also joined with Malik Abdul. Atomic MAGA. Atomic MAGA, the yeah. do-rag, like something. Oh, I couldn't figure out what the last part. The do-rag, <laughs> conservative, ultra-atomic Man, MAGA you got to rock that do-rag one day. Come I'm, in with I'm the dashiki, do just day. do the whole thing. I'm going to do it Have one day. Have the African patterns and all. Like, you know, pull up Nancy Pelosi and... and oh, you know, man. You know what? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to yes. do it one day, and I'll also say that I don't get the... And because we could debate it forever, but I don't necessarily get the experimental vaccine argument. I don't get it either. I mean, of course... Wait, why? Because... Well, I'll, I'll tell you why. So, I participated in three clinical trials. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, three clinical trials. I participated in them. That's why you look so young. Experimental <laughs> vaccines. <laughs> yeah. All of them were experimental vaccines. Any drug that you take, if you take an aspirin, yeah. if you take an ibuprofen, it was an experimental drug. At some point, yeah. Because it goes through a clinical trial. Right. There are certain things that you have to do when you're participating in a clinical trial when they're trying to figure out whether or not to fast track yes. drugs. If you're hungry, if you're not sleeping well. Oh, they take any if, consequence. Yeah, anything. anything. It was like, my stomach hurt a little bit. Okay, they write that down. Stomach hurt a little bit. And, and you have to document yeah. all of this stuff. So these are all of the things that you have to do before you know, you get the FDA fast track approval. So I don't, when I say I don't buy the, I don't get the experimental vaccine argument, it's because of my personal experience with experimental vaccines. We don't have the time to get into yes. this. Because yes. we got to go to headlines. However, I have all kinds of rebuke and refute <laughs> about that and the way this particular vaccine was expedited and the details and information from specifically Pfizer, they quelched all their information and yeah. hid it from the government. Didn't they say whether, they couldn't show it for like 30 years or something? Oh, yeah, it was, it was, some, it was whether, some ridiculous it was thing. Yeah, yeah. that and, information and should have been out. The yeah. clinical it was trial, some no, yeah. the, the, tr- the clinical trial specifically, it outlines it takes years to, to be you know, fully, yeah. quote, a clinical trial. Oh, it was an emergency use, right. emergency something like that. use authorization. Yeah. But again, this conversation would take the whole damn hour, <laughs> and we don't have time yeah. for that. But, but specifically, we are finding out that Pfizer hid a lot of details of what they did know and their omissions, like for people with autoimmune disorders that impact people like me. So when you're hiding that information because they say we autoimmune people like me, are two to three percent of society, so um, let's just not include them. That detail, and why is the FDA and the government continuing to suppress that information to kick it back, hold it off for fifty years? This no, is not I, JFK. I agree with you on that. This I, is not yeah, JFK. Thousand percent agree with you on that part. That the information should have been out regardless. Right. And keep in mind, there was a political argument with this too. Like. It, it, where Pfizer left off, the politics took over, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's Pfizer took the government like that. I think it was the other way around. I think it's just for in the, in, in the world of science. In the yeah, world can, of science, in the world of science, they squelched conversation. And don't and let me get on Fauci. That's not cool. And Fauci comes that out lying. Okay. That's another. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation yes. with Fauci, where he knew, or at the very least, there was let's say talk about whether the stuff came from a lab. Fauci immediately took the position right. it didn't, and then yeah, eventually scuttled it. Yeah. 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 Again, We're gonna this conversation into that. Yeah. would yes. take a whole yes. hour. So, yeah. Which is why I'm going to get to some right domestic there. news. <laughs> right there. Former president, former U.S. President Donald Trump said during a rally in the state of Ohio that he will make a 
big announcement on November 15th at his Mar-a-Lago residence in Florida. Quoting, I'm going to be making a very big announcement on Tuesday, November 15th at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida, Trump said on Monday night. We want nothing to detract from the importance of tomorrow. Ahead of the Monday rally, insiders had claimed the former commander-in-chief would be announcing his candidacy in the 2024 election, and it seems as if Donald Trump decided to hold off at least until next week. Twitter chief Elon Musk has recommended voting for Republican congressional candidates in the November 8th midterm elections in the United States. Quoting Musk, to independent-minded voters, shared power curbs the worst excesses of both parties. Therefore, I am recommending that you vote for a Republican Congress, given that the presidency is Democratic. Musk said via social media, also adding that hardcore Democrats and Republicans are unlikely to vote for the other party, prompting him to make the plea to independent voters in particular Independent voters are the group who actually decide election outcomes, the Twitter CEO chief said. Now, there is some truth to what he's saying. Diehard Republicans will never vote for a Democrat. Diehard Democrats will never vote for a Republican. There was, you know, sometimes then there was 2020 and 2016 when many Republicans fled to vote for Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. But overall, Musk is actually right about that. Nothing about those two change. Independents, both parties, they fight for the independent vote and the base of their party. Billionaire George Soros topped the list of individual political donors for the 2022 midterm cycle, um, election cycle, contributing more than 120 $8 million to Democrats. Not to both sides, but to Democrats. This is according to data from the nonpartisan election funding tracker Open Secrets. Soros, head of Soros Fund Management, contributed a total of $128,475,971 to Democrats for the annual, peer, annual period and no money to Republicans. Again, this is according to Open Secrets. The money, all over $126 million was outside money. The second biggest contributor was Richard Uline of Uline, Inc., who gave about $80 million to Republicans. This is according, again, to Open Secrets. They also say that the National Association of Realtors, NAR, Top the list of Political Action Committee PAC contributors for the annual period, giving over $1 million to both Democrats and Republicans. UN National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said during a think tank event that U.S. officials recently had an opportunity to engage with the Russian government at senior levels to reduce risk and convey the consequences of the potential use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine? American media reported that Sullivan had been contacting confidential talks, had been conducting confidential talks in recent months with Kremlin aide Yuri Yushikov and Russian Security Council Nikolai Petrushev 
The Kremlin and White House declined to confirm that such talks took place. Quoting, we in the Biden administration have had the opportunity to engage at senior levels with the Russians to communicate, to reduce risk, to convey the consequences of the potential use of nuclear weapons, Sullivan said on Monday when asked about his reported talks with Russian officials. He went on to say, we have not described the channels that we have done in order to protect, protect those channels. Now, it should be noted that according to our Pentagon, there is no evidence that Russia is preparing to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Again, no evidence. U.S. law enforcement agencies have not been able to identify any credible threats related to the midterm elections this week, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said on Monday. Law enforcement has briefed us, this is quoting Corinne, law enforcement has briefed us that there are no specific credible threats identified at this point. Jean-Pierre remarked this during a Monday briefing when asked whether there was a chance of repeat January 6 events after the Tuesday midterms. U.S. President Joe Biden has been briefed on the threat environment and directed that all appropriate steps be taken to ensure safe and secure voting occurs. The question that I would actually like to have an answer to, why would a reporter ask that question? Let's be serious here. Why would a reporter ask at a time when Republicans are slated to definitely win the House and potentially the Senate? Why would a reporter ask about January, whether there will be a repeat of January 6th? This is part of the PSYOPs campaign. Trust me. Trust me on this. And in international news... The U.S. government is drafting a resolution for the U.N. Security Council to increase sanctions pressure on North Korea and is also considering deploying an aircraft carrier in the Sea of Japan should North Korea conduct a nuclear test, the Japanese media reported citing sources. In particular, the draft resolution may include a restriction on the export of oil and oil products from North Korea, as well as sanctions against the Lazarus hacker group, which is allegedly associated with the North Korean regime. In addition, it is not ruled out that if the draft resolution is not approved, the United States, Japan, and South Korea will improve unilateral sanctions against North Korea. In more international news, more than a quarter of Europeans saying they are in a precarious financial state and have fear they soon will be, according to a new poll. The Six Nations survey by Ipsos for French poverty NGO Secours Populaire, which is the People's Aid, found that 27% were in financial dire straits, defined as one expected expenditure could change everything, while 55% said they had to be careful with spending to avoid getting into the same position. It is also found that 54% of 6,000 people polled in France, Germany, Greece, Italy, Poland, and the UK had seen their purchasing power of their income fall over the past three years. Almost 9 out of 10 cited rising prices for food, fuel, heating, and rent now going through the roof thanks to Western sanctions on Russia over its military operation in Ukraine as the reasons for their declining prosperity. 3 in 10 said rising taxes had contributed to the predicament. 
More international news, Chinese President Xi Jinping is expected to visit Saudi Arabia before the end of 2022, according to U.S. media. Sino-Saudi trade has steadily increased since they established relations in 1990, with China buying up to 27% of Saudi oil exports last year. At the end of 21, annual bilateral trade amounted to about $87 billion. And also between January and August of 2022, Saudi Aramco Aramco <laughs> delivered Aramco. Aramco, I'm going to get it right yet, <laughs> delivered an average Keep of, one, Keep get it. <laughs> of 1.7 million barrels per day of petroleum to China. Ah, Rayada has long supported China's position. Riyadh. 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 I was like, Riyadh. It's like Riyadh. I'm, I'm like, oh, look, she's dropping a new album? Look, yeah, I was like, I'm, <laughs> I'm saying Rihanna here. Yeah, this is, this is not good. Okay. Riyadh. 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 Yeah, Riyadh. Has long supported Chinese positions on key issues, including its sovereignty over Taiwan and its de-radicalization policies in Xinjiang. 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 Speaking at a meeting with Foreign Minister Faisal Faran al-Saud of Saudi Arabia last month, Chinese Foreign Minister and State Councilor Wang Yi told reporters that Beijing attaches great importance to developing relations with Saudi Arabia, taking Saudi Arabia as a priority in its overall diplomacy, its Middle East diplomacy in particular. And finally, in international news, Algeria has made an official application to join BRICS. Media reported citing Foreign Ministry Special Envoy Lila Zaroki. This comes after Iran and Argentina earlier this year also announced they were taking membership in the group. Moreover, BRICS International Foreign President Purnima Anand stated Turkey, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia may very soon follow them in applying. And on this day in history, 2002 Iraq disarmament crisis, UN Security Council under Resolution 1441 unanimously approves a resolution on Iraq, forcing Saddam Hussein to disarm or face serious consequences. In 2005, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf is elected president of Liberia, the first woman to lead an African country. Meanwhile, we still have a lot of men in the United States. And in 2016, Republican Donald J. Trump is elected 45th president of the United States of America, defeating Democrat Hillary Clinton with an electoral college victory of a whopping 304 to Hillary Clinton's 227. Clinton received just under 2.9 million more popular votes. These are your headlines for today. Tuesday, Election Day, November 8th. You are listening to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. Judgment Day, indeed. It is. Let's get into a conversation on the election itself. We're going to have multiple guests come on and have a conversation, get their take on it. One side and the other. Yes. So this is going to be great. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Milik Abdul. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. 
Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with Manila Chan and Malik Abdul coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what we're putting down, whatever platform, you're consuming this content on, give us a like, share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make the show what it is. Don't be shy. We'll try to get to you at 945. Judgment Day is here. Election Day. And let's bring in our guests. We're going to have two guests talking about it, and they're going to talk about it in um, different ways, I in suppose. their own sides. Yes, on their own sides. We have Robert Patillo, um, attorney Robert Hillard Patillo II, is the executive director of the Rainbow Push Coalition's Peachtree Street headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. Robert has worked with and advised Reverend Jesse Jackson for over 20 years and is a highly sought-off speaker and organizer in the field of civil and human rights. Robert, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing this morning? I am great. Thanks for having me. I am glad. We are glad to have you. Um, Democrats are expected to have a rough go of it today, especially in the House. And the Senate seems to be teetering on the brink one way or the other. Just give me your, I guess, two questions. For one, why? And two, what do you think is going to take place from the standpoint of the results, um, either in the Senate or for the matter of the House? Meaning, what do you think the breakdown is going to end up being? Well, I think reports of the Democrats' demise have been widely over-exaggerated uh, in the in the last couple of weeks. I think what we've seen is a lot of contradictory polling, a lot more sensationalized headlines. I think all of us who work in politics long enough to understand that the poll numbers are less important than the crosstabs on some of those polls. I think uh, 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 some people putting the cart before the horse on this demise. But it is a uh, off-year election. The party normally loses massive numbers of seats. We saw after Obama was elected in 2008 and 10 election, Democrats losing 60 seats. I do think the Democrats will lose the House of Representatives um, by a narrow margin. I'm thinking uh, I'm uh, thinking it'll be between 6 and 13 vote advances in the House of Republicans coming out of this with Speaker McCarthy uh, using that power to, uh, to exact revenge on Democrats over the course of the next couple of years. I also think that Democrats will up seats in the Senate. I think that many of these close races uh, will break because what, think of some of the limitations of polling data that you have. Uh, normally, you're talking landline polls where people are calling uh, individuals on their landline right. between 6 and 8 p.m. Uh, of course, that demographic is going to skew older. It's going to uh, skew wider. Uh, it's going to skew uh, more stable. Like, you're not getting new transplants in the states. Georgia population has bounced up by 700,000 the last couple of years. Most of the people don't get counted on a poll. Um, new registrants to vote generally aren't going to be counted on the poll because uh, you're generally calling super voters or definite voters. So I think many of these numbers Going to be are going to come out a lot different, and that's going to cause Republicans to say that the election was stolen from them. Uh, look how the uh, numbers are different than the poll numbers were, and then I'll be a whole can of worms there. I think on the governor's races, you're going to see not a lot of surprises. Brian Kemp will win, Ron DeSantis will win, Greg Abbott will win. I don't think you're going to see a lot of the things flip or a lot of big surprises. The New York race is something that I will look at where I do actually think the Republican uh, will pull it out there. Really? Wow. Well, yeah, you know, in, in, in a non-existent hypothetical poll in New York, Zeldin versus Hochul, he narrowly edges her out within the, the margin of error. But in the hypothetical Zeldin versus a return of Cuomo, Cuomo wallops him by 10 really? points. Really? So, Cuomo! Yeah, it's, so to me, 
They Bobby, won't that, that shows me that at least in New York, neither candidate is really beloved or trusted, but for some reason they trust Cuomo? I mean, could he potentially stage <laughs> wow. a comeback after this? Oh, absolutely he will. Uh, I think that w- what we're seeing is this, uh, we very much as a nation uh, got a little, we overcorrected on Me Too related things for a while to the point where we start throwing people out left and right. Justin Fairfax, for example, who the lieutenant governor of Virginia, uh, went through something of that nature where we started put or the party started pulling people out of power that the people actually still supported. Al Franken. I definitely think that you could see Cuomo coming back, you know, a little maybe a couple tour, a book, a couple of soft interviews. Um, people have very short memories when it comes to these things. And the problem for Hochul is that she was never elected by the majority of the people. She's not known by the majority of people, name recognition, you know, you, you you can't not know the name Cuomo. It's not from television or bridges or who knows what. Uh, you're going to know, know the name Cuomo New York. So it's a, uh, a very difficult place Hoko was put into. I have you to come back from this scandal and also um, being kind of thrown directly into the middle of this race without, not, without a lot to say of what you've done. And Robert, now you mentioned polls and the uh, uncertainty with polls, and I agree with you. There are certain it, It's not an exact science, but for all intents and purposes, most people have been making the same argument about polls uh, and, and how accurate they are. They've been making that since we had cell phones. So <laughs> you're making a similar argument now, but as we know from a historical perspective, obviously Republicans are slated to do well during the—well, Republicans are slated to take control at least of one or both chambers. So that's—you don't necessarily need a lot of polling because history is on your side. But I I wanted to address a couple of things that you said about the polls themselves and that you don't think that there's going to be much changing. Yes, on the Senate—on the— House side, sure, I think those things will speak for itself. But when you have competitive Senate races, like, for instance, Laxalt, it seems as if Republicans will pick up that seat in Nevada. So that will actually be one of the flip seats. If we're moving on talking about um, other, you know, what other polls are, well, Carrie Lake is up in in Arizona. It's currently held by a uh, Republican now. So obviously it looks like Carrie Lake as a very good chance of winning. But you look on over to, what is that, Nevada. Look at the race between Lombardo, I think, what is his name, Lombardo and Sisolak. It's currently held, the incumbent is a Democrat, and it seems as if that Republicans, with now um, Lombardo being a couple of points up, might just flip that seat too. So Republicans, it's not just Kemp, and it's not just uh, uh, DeSantis and what 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 Abbott. is his name? Abbott and out of Ohio. You know, their Republicans seem to be doing very well. But I wanted to ask you this, particularly about the Democratic Party. So earlier in the year, we were having conversations about voter suppression. Um, maybe about spring going into the summer, we were having questions about Row. And all of these things were supposed to be helpful to Democrats leading up into the midterms. I mean, it was supposed to be a, well, wow, we can't believe that this is happening. This is very good. And there was polling, polling that Democrats actually used at the time to suggest that Democrats were doing well, at least on the generic ballot during the primary season. But what happened? Oh, they they did well. This this is the no, 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 Robert, Robert. I'm saying what 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 happened? As, because the only thing that we have to focus, the only thing that we have to go on are numbers. So according to the numbers, which are the polls, the polls are not saying that voters voter voting rights nor abortion rank at the top of list of concerns for voters. Inflation, economy, crime, and immigration. What happened with those? 
wedge issues that we expected to be um, front and center during the campaign and helpful to Democrats. And they might, when, when I say that this is doing well, I'm saying compared to where parties usually do in midterm elections, this is normally an election where Democrats will lose 35 seats in the House uh, and probably a half dozen seats in the United States Senate, where you'll see that red wave, that red tsunami that people are talking about, given the economic conditions, given the uh, residuals of the pandemic, given the war uh, overseas, given some of the unpopular policies that have had to happen. This is normally a uh, an election where the party in power would get absolutely decimated. The fact that we're talking about Democrats even potentially holding on to the Senate and uh, having a, a go at it in the House, that's what I mean by this is the version of it going well. I, I, I do think... But Robert, who's arguing that... Repu- that who's seriously arguing that Democrats are going to maintain the Senate? I mean, maintain the House. I think there's an argument to me. I don't think it's going to happen, but just the fact that it's within shooting distance, within uh, spitting distance. Republicans only need four to win. So what do you... The Republicans will pick up those four and maybe five more after that, uh, as opposed to the predicted picking up 35 to 40 seats uh, where you have one of those Tea Party Revolution type elections. So you don't think that Republicans can pick up 10 to 20 seats? You think it'll be less than 10? Yeah, I think it'll be less than 10, 15 at most. Uh, I think that that's going to be the, the entirety of the wave. And a lot of that is based on redistricting that took place uh, at the state level. Uh, a lot of it also goes to party uh, organization on the state and local level, where you saw during the Obama years, uh, over 1,000, like 1,044 state and local races were lost. Um, or flipped from Democrat to Republican. Just Republicans have a better, better infrastructure. On the state and local level, they have, they control more uh, state governments, where able to redistrict lines to make it easier for their candidates to win. So I, I do think you're. Oh no, you're, yeah, good good point there. Before we, before we go though, I wanted to ask you, what impact do you think black men will have on the election, and how have Democrats handled? Um, dealt with black men. And while we're in there, what about suburban women? And I'm pointing <laughs> to myself. But what do you think the the impact of black men, the role of black men in this election and how Democrats have actually um, catered to black men or not? Well, they haven't catered to black men. They scapegoated black men uh, in this election. I think it's one of the, the biggest pieces of political malpractice that they did. They took a group that, at worst, would vote for you 88% of the time, and then you have Stacey Abrams spending the entire month of September diverting the conversation, saying, well, if black men vote for me, I'll win. No, you're trailing uh, with suburban white women uh, significantly. I'm predicting 74% plus of white women in Georgia will vote for Brian Kemp. I think making only the Dobbs decision your sole policy on uh, on women's issues this election cycle, uh, that's all well and good for your women's studies majors at, at uh, the ones who are together. <laughs> they're worried about crime. They're worried about gas prices. They're worried about change that is going on demographically in the country. Uh, they worry about many of these kitchen table issues, and they have not moved to the left as fast as maybe Susan Sarandon. <laughs> <laughs> Expand more on on the women thing. I mean, yes, yeah, I'm curious suburban, about that. Suburban white women, sure, but suburban women like myself in general were not concerned about the Me Too stuff because that stuff primarily doesn't impact married suburban women. 
Exactly. The many of the issues that Democrats decided would be the kind of the raison d'etre of this election. What they're working on, what uh, they're supporting, it just is not what is for front and center for suburban women. Uh, when it comes, to, and this is why Republicans always kind of clean up in that demographic with the, as uh, Sarah Palin called it, the hockey moms yeah. of America, because they they have to be concerned about uh, what is best for their children. Uh, the Republicans doubled down on the culture war in this election. Uh, in Georgia, there's commercials running saying Raphael Warnock supports gentle mutilation of children oh, geez. Because, or transgender issues. Uh, they turned that into uh, uh, something they were running on. So anything that can promote fear, can promote uncertainty, um, that helps you with suburban women. I think Democrats did the same thing with Dobbs. Republicans uh, did it with uh, many of these culture war issues. And it seems to be breaking their way because, uh, as I've told people many times, the same policies that work in L.A. and New York and D.C. Um, don't work in Georgia, don't work in uh, South Carolina, don't work in Mississippi. And you make it difficult for down-ballot uh, Democrats when you take some of these more, more extreme positions. Last question. I'm curious, why? I mean, like Malik kind of made the point, right? I mean, economy, inflation, immigration, crime, et cetera. Why wasn't that the top of the agenda for Democrats? I'm just curious your take on it. The people with the money are the ones who decide what the agenda is. Uh, because the money is there, but coming from feminist groups, because the money is coming for environmental groups, they are the ones who get to set the agenda. And we saw that it was called flat-footed. When black men started asking, hey, do you have anything for us? They literally had no answer for it and still don't have an answer for it because there's been no money invested into it. So until uh, they start disconnecting policy decisions from where the from the donor base, you're going to continue to see the same place the fundraisers are at in San Francisco and L.A. Uh, in New York and from the larger northern metropolitan areas and on the left coast. They get to set the policy agenda because they're writing the checks. Hey, Robert, what, what, quickly, what, what did Stacey Abrams, what was the comment that she said about black men, the reason d- d- not knowing what was basic, essentially she said we didn't know what was good enough for her. What was her what? comment? What? I know you, I know you know it. She telling them what's good for them? Did, what was it, Robert? So, so back back in September, she made the comment, uh, well, if black men vote for me, I'll win this race. Well, you're, you're down 10 points. The black men were 10 points in the electorate in Georgia. We would have been had reparations. Yeah, right. What, what, 13% of the population in the United States? She's like, yeah, vote for me. Yeah. Robert, thank you for this, man. I really appreciate Bob, it. We're going to talk to you on the flip side of this election and see. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we definitely want to bring you back to see how it went. Robert Patillo, our attorney. Robert Patillo II is executive director of the Rainbow Push Coalition's Peach Tree Street Project, headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. That's a mouth <laughs> tongue twister. Robert has worked with and advised Reverend Jesse Jackson for over 20 years and is a highly sought out after speaker, organizer in the field of civil and human rights. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas, Manila Chan, Malik Abdul. We're coming back. Still we'll doing election coverage. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Fault lines. 
Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with Manila Chan and Malik Abdul. Coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we are still talking about elections. Judgment Day. That's today. People are going out to vote today. And we just had a conversation with, Doc, uh, with Rob Pertillo. Let's have a conversation with Steve Gill. He's going to be on the other side of the spectrum. Steve Gill is an attorney and CEO of Gill Media, a Nashville, Tennessee-based public affairs, media, and marketing company. Steve. Welcome to the show, man. How are you doing this well, morning? Don't forget, he was also he worked as an oh, intergovernmental inter- affairs for the boss. U.S. Trade yes. Representative, and that's where his expertise in our economy comes into play. Uh, because it's right, the economy, Steve. stupid. It's the economy, right, stupid. Steve? <laughs> Good morning, guys, and, and let me make sure I understand this of what y'all were talking about just a moment ago. So, Stacey Abrams is woman explaining to black men. Yes, yes. So, so <laughs> yes. Steve, I I pulled up the quote. It's not it's not the one that Robert referenced. Oh, okay, good. What's the quote? Here's the quote. November sixth, that it was um tweeted from Yve- Yvette Carnelli. Unfortunately, this year, black men have not been a very targeted population. I'm sorry, black men have been a very targeted population for misinformation. Not misinformation about what they want, but about why they want what they deserve. Wow! Wow! Now, on one hand, it is very Kamala Kamala Harris. Yes, it is because it makes. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's a super weird statement. They not they want, but about why they want what they deserve. Basically, I think what she's trying to say is black men don't know that what she's offering is good for us. Right, right. Like, we don't oh, know like, any you better. You all don't know. Yeah, we don't know any better. It's, it's, it's almost like if saying, you were we've, for me, you would understand what's good for you. We've gotten hit with so much misinformation. We're just idiots. So dumb. And we've been Like we were in 2016. Yeah. Okay. We were, black okay. people overall were just so dumb in Insufficiently loyal is the way that Hillary Clinton put it. We were, the Russians, <laughs> the Russians were going <laughs> to convince us to vote for Donald Trump. Yeah, but I'm sorry, Steve. I, I... Steve, give me give me your take on the breakdown on election. I'm going to ask you the same question. Um, Democrats are expected to basically lose pretty poorly or pretty badly in this particular election. I guess the first question is why, and the second question is what do you think the breakdown is going to be in regards to the electoral um, fallout? First of all, I'm I was an English major in college. I'm just glad I don't have to diagnose <laughs> administrations, you know, top level press people because I I don't understand. I think they're mumbling in some language, but it's not exactly English. Right. Um, I, I do think that Republicans are going to get uh, a red wave today. And, and the basic reason is that, that they're talking about the policies that matter to American families, uh, safe, you know, having items on the grocery shelves that they can afford, uh, gas prices they can afford, locking down a border that has been awash with illegal invasion, uh, restoring the the, uh, the the rule of law in the United States. So those are the things that matter to people. And what the Democrats have essentially been talking about is that if you if you vote for Republicans, uh, they're going to take your kids, put them in jail, and kill them. Democracy will come to an end. Nobody nobody believes any of that, and it just it just looks bizarre that that's what they're talking about at the end of the day. Uh, or Nancy Pelosi's husband being attacked by a crackpot that somehow that's going to affect me and my family, and I should vote for Democrat because. You know, Paul Pelosi in his underwear getting, you know, hit by another guy in his underwear affects me. And you know what, Steve, and that, that's a very good point, and we talked about it last week. If you think about Biden's impromptu-ish speech at Union Station last week, he literally started off talking about, as you said, Pelosi. So it was framed around political violence, voter, um, voter intimidation, um, January 6th, 
and Donald Trump. That was his message going into the midterms. And I said that, and surprisingly, I've had more Democrats respond saying that wasn't the right move than the than the dark Brandon, the red background and all of that. So I've had more Democrats say that. But to your point, though, this is the message going into it. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem as if they were backing away. You had Barack Obama, who... You know, I'm not moved by Barack Obama trying to be the adult in the room telling the Democrats because I think it's really just BS and convenient. Well, he dad explains now. Yeah, well, that's that's what he does. You know, I don't take Barack Obama seriously when it comes to that um, because there's a lot of times he can speak out against things that his party is doing. Well, by the way, they were criticizing him, saying that Obama never really got into this particular midterms. He did. Well, well, he didn't. And, And I think people misunderstand Obama's popularity during elections, Barack Obama had doesn't have hasn't had long coattails. Even if you go back, well, what from they 2010. lost a thousand people. What they, a thousand elections right. at the time where Obama was in office. Yeah. So yeah. he he doesn't have long coattails. But Steve, what 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 do you make of the message going into? Because we you know we kind of touched on it. But when you have Joe Biden with his speech that he gave last week, and now we're hearing, you know, they're seeming as if they're trying to, you know, Stacey Abrams talking about misinformation. The story about Russian bots are back, and Russian bots are back. Spreading, spreading, if you will, the same information that we're talking about on all media. Confusing so these economic men. anxiety. These are all the things right. that the Russian, Russian bots yeah. are yeah. talking they about. They yeah. your brain. It's screwing with those black men and their decision. They don't know what's good for them. Yes. But Steve, go go for it. I the one of them. I know that was a lot, but just go for it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the bottom line is that this is going to be a security election. National security, economic security border security, community security. I don't think that the Republicans really did as an effective job as they could have of, of kind of combining those as the, as the overall message, that this is a security election, because I think that's, that's what's underlying it. But I, I don't think that they made the case as strongly as they could have. They've, they've kind of in different made that case. But the bottom line is the results are going to be a security election. And, and the Democrats have had no answer to any of those items other than, uh, you know, to claim that uh, you know, democracy is at stake when people get to go vote for who they want to put in charge. That is actually how democracy works. The fact that they think if you don't vote their way is the totalitarianism that they keep blaming on Republicans when, when they're the ones that are, you know, expecting a do as we say and don't ask questions kind of mentality among the voting populace. And, and I think the other thing that, that they have completely misjudged is, is the idea that, that they can create the posture that violence is coming from the right. When we look at, at the violence that uh, was the summer of burning and looting throughout the country, when we look at the scenes that come out of the major Democrat-run cities, when you look at defunding the police, releasing criminals, Kamala Harris actually bailing out people who were looting, destroying so they could go back on the street and do it. Nobody's really buying the idea that it is these Republican uh, folks that are out there creating all the havoc and all the chaos. And I think that, again, their message is just, it's just so off base of what, you know, is actually impacting people. And the blame game is not, is not working. And I think we're going to see that in the results. Steve, I would say it's as a suburban mom, a suburban voter, woman, I would say it's all about economy, right? Like moms are worried about are we going to have gas to even put in the car? Am I going to be able to buy, you know, the Christmas present my kids want for Christmas if 
There's a supply chain shortage. There's no diesel. The East Coast is running on 50% at this point uh, of our diesel reserves. What's this winter going to look like? My gas, my electricity bill is crazy. My natural gas bill has gone up. All these bills are rising and Democrats have yet to present any facts and figures about how they're going to resolve my issues as a suburban mom voter, right? And secondarily, um, I want to point out back in my hometown of Los Angeles, there are two Democrats running. It's, it's been a runoff. Two Democrats have risen up to run for mayor to replace Eric Garcetti, who's been sadly completely dreadful. Karen Bass, Congresswoman, and big-time developer Rick Caruso, who recently flipped from saying he was a Republican to now he's on the Democrat ticket. But we all know he's really, you know, a, a Republican. But he recently flipped. He spent $80 million of his own money to finance to become, yeah, because he wants to be the mayor. And then you have Karen Bass, who spent $11 million. And nobody, in Cal- nobody back home that I know in California is happy about anything, the price of anything, that they are paying for in Los Angeles. So take that away, Steve. How, what do you make of this? Well, in, in my last gloom and doom appearance with you guys, we talked a little bit about the diesel fuel running dry and actually come to fruition. And, and, and that's getting little, if any, attention in the mainstream media, except in those few areas where they're starting to report that they are out of diesel fuel. That's going to affect everything from, again, supply chain, as, as Manila pointed out, to to uh, the ability to get food to the to the grocery stores, Christmas presents, Thanksgiving turkeys, and then you add the fact that everything's costing more. And as you as you go to the grocery store, and again, the suburban moms see this best. You know, the, the packaging of everything you're buying is is shrunk down, and the prices are going up. Right, so double whammy that that you're paying more for less. And again, that's what people are experiencing. And the Biden administration, you know, just disclaims it. Oh, we've cut the the uh, uh, national debt in half. No, they didn't. Oh, gas prices are lower than when I came in. Uh, no, they aren't. Prices are under control. We don't have inflation. Inflation is just one of those words that Republicans have made up now to, to fool us into thinking the economy is bad. Well, according to Joe Biden, it's transitory and that we're going to have a soft landing, despite the fact that everybody says to the contrary. I mean, not to mention he's basically making the situation worse. If you had a number breakdown, what would the number breakdown be? The number in the House and Senate. Oh, like how many? Yeah. Who wins what? Who wins what? Like if you had a, you know, how many seats flip um, in the House and how many flip in the Senate, just as a general number? I think uh, Republicans end up with about a 40-seat gain, which would put them at one of the highest levels that either party has had in, in decades. So I think about a 40-seat gain for Republicans in the House. I think, you know, 52 or 53 seats in the Senate. Uh, and then I think you're going to see maybe three, if not four, Republican pickups in governor's offices. Uh, and all of this kind of red wave trickles down to, to have an impact on state house, state Senate races, school board races. Yeah, because if people are coming out and voting for a Republican in one, most likely they're not going to split in the way that they um, vote. Parker does well. I mean, when you've got like a 10 point or more gap for, for the governor, I don't see as many split tickets as, uh, as some of the prognosticators are trying to, to claim to try and uh, keep uh, uh, Warnock in the Senate. I, I think Herschel Walker ends up winning uh, in part because but there aren't a lot of coattails in many cases, but I think there's going to be sufficient coattails in Georgia that, um, that Kemp and, and Walker and the Secretary of State and the Attorney General all win in Georgia. Let me ask you this. What does it mean if Republicans take the House and the Senate, meaning having a divided government from the standpoint of Republicans with the Congress and 
Joe Biden with the presidency? What does it look like in practice going forward? Just as I know, I know it's a prognostication, but still, I'm just curious who you take. Now, the Republicans could put the brakes on. They can't pass anything because Joe Biden's not going to sign anything into law that comes out of the Senate and the House. Uh, but they can they can stop the uh, the damage that's been done. Now, he'll still have the ability with the executive orders to to talk big and, and announce what he's doing that will you know, end up being found illegal. And I think you'll see state attorney generals challenging, you know, every step of the way, just as they've challenged the, uh, you know, giveaway of, of student loan, you know, repayment uh, and, and, you know, just handing government tax dollars to people to buy their vote. So Republicans will be able to a lot more damage, but they won't be able to, for example, pass legislation that will reopen the pipelines or reopen uh, our energy independence or or actually force spending on on the border. Uh, now, if they'll play hardball and, and make it clear to the Biden administration that they will not get a single judge confirmed in the Senate, they will not get a single political appointee confirmed in the Senate, uh, that they're going to be operating with interims and vacancies. Uh, if they will play hardball, they can force the Biden administration to, uh, to come to a seat at the table and, and have a negotiated uh, result on some of these items. They can, with the control of the purse strings, pull the plug on 87,000 uh, IRS agents and, and dare uh, President Biden to, to, to veto it. Uh, but I think that they need to do that piecemeal. Don't pass a full budget, pass pieces where you can really draw the attention to the fact that he's vetoed you know, legislation that the American people you know, overwhelmingly support. Burden on him with piece-by-piece legislation, not these kind of big, overarching, uh, big, uh, big deal pieces of legislation. I, I think the other thing they can do is they, they really need to, to show a better job of using the bully pulpit themselves than Republicans tend to do. You know, you can, you can have these investigations in the, in the House Judiciary Committee, but keep them tight, keep them small, and, and use the visuals of holding the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland accountable for the uh, use of our Justice Department as a politicized weapon. Uh, use the uh, focus on the border and Mayorkas uh, and, the Dem- and the Democratic uh, majority allowing us to be invaded, uh, you know, completely across the border. You know, keep your investigations tight. If they look vindictive and vengeful and you go after, you know, impeaching Joe Biden, I don't think that plays with the American people as well as if you're doing investigations and effectively show trials to demonstrate the difference, not looking like you're, you know, just trying to play, uh, play get back and, and uh, you know, we're going to go after you like you went after us. I think you've got to keep it focused on solutions, not just looking vindictive. No, Steve, one of the just um, one of the things I wanted to mention, and it just dawned on me about Georgia. We're talking about the Georgia race, but there's really isn't enough discussion about Georgia is a a runoff state. Oh, okay. so if neither one of them oh, reach fifty percent, one on one, then it's going to be a runoff election. It will be a similar thing that we saw in twenty um, twenty twenty. Yeah, when Abrams. Oh, oh, gee, who was the senator? Kelly Loeffler. Oh. And I can't think of who the other senator was. They didn't get over the 50% threshold in November. So that's how Warnock ended up in there because they oh, had the special election okay. in January. So if Warnock and um, neither Warnock nor Walker get above 50, well, get to They'll 50%. They have to go into a runoff. So, Steve, what do you think what happens just particularly like in that runoff? Because there's not a lot of discussion talking about that. There was, you know, people saying that we won't know the results of outcomes for some time. But Georgia really is ground zero for that simply because of the runoff. So it's a possibility that we may not know until January 
who wins that race. Well, that that is true, but it it will be the same but different because uh, you know two years ago the balance of the Senate hung in the air, whereas in this case I think you're going to see Republicans on election night or the next day at 52 uh, seats in the Senate and uh, maybe 53. So the runoff will not be for determining control of the Senate like mm-hmm. years ago. I, I think that, uh, frankly, you'll have less Democrat interest in it if they've already lost the Senate. And I think that what you see most likely after uh, tonight is that the finger-pointing, the recrimination, the blame game on the Democratic side of, of, uh, of everybody trying to, to fight for who, who's to blame, who's going to take over for Nancy Pelosi, because I think she— steps aside. She's already laying it out that it may be her husband's health that causes her to step aside. No, they're going to grab the gavel from your hand and delegate you to a back bench. Uh, she's going to step aside. The rumors are that her daughter uh, will take her congressional seat, but the power base will, will shift and she'll be gone, not because of her husband's health, but because of a, a red wave. And you know what, Steve? I'm surprised to see what's happening in Arizona. I honestly did not. Blake Masters has significantly closed the gap. And we talked about the down ballot, you know, voting down ballot. And I think a large part of that is due to the popularity of Carrie Lake. But now um, Blake Masters in the last several polls has been leading. And if you look at the real clear politics average, he's up. He's up now. So we may actually it's a it's an even greater possibility now that we may error. flip that margin of yeah, error. Yeah, it's it's yeah, and all of these things were the, are within the margin. I think your of point error. though is he came back in order to be within that margin of error. Yes, and 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 he's running against an incumbent. Yeah. So the incumbent is a Democrat. Yeah, and incumbents usually have a, an advantage. But but I would say that this yeah. is the Carrie Lake effect. Do you do you think that there is a Carrie Lake effect in Arizona? Definitely. I think, again, it will have impact on some of the lower ballot races, in, including the uh, uh, the Senate race, which I guess is actually above her on the on the ballot. Keep in mind that all of this polling is 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 reflective of trend lines and all of the trend lines in all the polls are in favor of, of Republicans moving the races closer, moving Republicans ahead of the Democrat incumbents. And if you're a Democrat incumbent uh, at any level, and you're in the 45, 46 range, you're a dead man walking because the uh, undecideds are not going to swing to somebody they already know, to somebody who's already in. And when you look at the trend lines in favor of the Republicans, polls are usually about three days behind what's actually happening. So if you're looking at a poll today where somebody's closed the gap two, three points, moved slightly ahead, they're probably a point or two beyond that in terms of the reality of what's going to happen election day. Last thing I'm going to ask of you here is Elon Musk chimed in last night. The whole Twitter sphere universe is freaking out because he is making a plea to independent voters to vote Republican because he says independent voters actually decide the election. They swing it one way or the other. He's making that call saying, go GOP. So it's a control of balance of powers. And to that, you say what? I say he's right that independents are what, what swing races those races. Uh, now, at this point, you're also wanting to gin up and get your base out, which is why both sides are tending to talk to their base, because now, you know, you want people to turn out. But independents are the swing. And, and Manila, you mentioned earlier, those suburban moms, you know, two years ago, their their distaste for Trump's personality pushed them towards Biden. Uh, now we're seeing that Trump's policies are pushing them towards the Republicans. Uh, I think the thing to watch is after tonight's election, 
you know, when Donald Trump emerges again as a personality instead of a policy, uh, do those you know suburban moms, you know, you know, re-embrace him when what they're embracing, I think, in this election, along with the independents, along with you know black and Hispanic voters, are the policies. They're not necessarily embracing his personality, and I think he's misjudging if he thinks that the winds that are coming today are that America's fallen back in love with him or that those swing voters have fallen back in, in love with him. I got to be honest. I don't think they're voting for his policies. I think they're voting against, against Democrats. Yeah. Oh, it's I think it's that. Yeah. I think it's a referendum against Biden. Yeah. Um, and all things being equal, you know, the president on some level has to be able to make a case. And if your case is they're going to overthrow the government or they're going to put me in chains or they're going to, then none of those things are directed related to policy that Joe Biden is basically running on. It's just running on this kind of fear campaign. Um, but Steve, thank you, man. I appreciate your commentary. I appreciate your take. Steve Gill is an attorney and CEO of Gill Media, a Nashville, Tennessee-based public affairs media and marketing company. He also serves as director of intergovernmental affairs for the U.S. Trade Representative. And let's do this. We can take one call. Um, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. The number is 202-521-1320. Maybe one or two calls, depending upon how long those calls are. Unless we stick to the strict two-minute law. Yes, in which case if. we can do two. Um, I, interesting dynamic. In one case, 45 seats. That's, in the other that's case, 15. Big, wow. so, so, so there's I'll a 35-seat difference between so the wow. two. The average is about 25, 26 seats. Yeah. That's the average. A red wave is anything above 25. 26 or so seats. Yeah. So, it's possible. I mean, the fact that it's possible in and of itself. less than the average. Yeah. Um, I mean, they only need, the Republicans four. only need one in the Senate to That's it. To just right. one. To swing the it. other way. Yeah. Right. yeah. And just the Senate one. is razor thin it's, at this point. Yeah. And so. I mean, does it boil down to Oz? Oh, well, that's the question. Does Fetterman win that? Do you think Fetterman takes that? Oof. I, I oh, think, I here's think where it's still. Here's where they're pissed. People are angry about this, is that Pennsylvania did early voting already. Yeah. And Oz's campaign is saying, if you guys had waited to allow early voting till after the the debate, the slugfest, <laughs> the sad slugfest, that many of those voters might be regretting having sent early. Yeah. So I think and he has o- a point. Oz, Oz is leading now in a few polls, but I'm still not sure about that. Because initially close. Fetterman was yeah. winning that. And By then after, a yeah. Slide. And so it's like people just but like, now, okay, that guy yikes. can't carry the burden. And Fetterman now, once he's petitioning to the Supreme Court to uh, account ballots that don't have like signatures, yeah. names and dates and stuff. So he's actually petitioning to get oh, those. Oh, he's, that, that, oh, that if you're doing that. Ruled yeah. that you cannot right. do. If you're Let's, doing that, something's wrong. We, we got Tarif yeah. in New Orleans. Hi, Tarif. How y'all doing? Thank y'all, man. First, I'd like to say free drone signs. I have um, four quick comments and be quick. And free drone signs, first of all. By, um, Elon Musk going to the $8 per person thing. That's going to cut down on a box. And that's got that's how people will be verified. Oh, you mean the verification process? People are complaining oh, bots, about that. Bots. Yeah, it was like, how dare you charge me eight bucks yeah. for go, verification? Go ahead, yeah. That's one. What else you got? The uh, second thing, four people from the Roots organization confronted Joe Biden at a speech about two or three days ago, and I shared it with y'all. Jose Vega from the Roots group shared it on uh, online. Four one thousand people saw uh, sold it, so I shared it to Fort Live Radio so I can see it. They, they say that he he's walking us into one wall three. That's yes. a third comment dealing with Trump. When he uh, if the, um, Twitter put him back on Twitter before November the thirteenth, what he have to say will actually help out people, help out the politicians. If he said is no wall, no nuclear wall, just work with Russia and China. 
He has put our money instead in Ukraine back into the United States. That would be so helpful for his campaign and also, you know, even for the 40 progressives that's in a Democrat. But do you think he'll say it? In an ideal world, maybe. Yeah, I don't think he'll say it. And my last comment is this. There's a rumor circulating around why Trump came out and he kind of slided Ryan DeSantos. Right, sanctimonious. Ryan sanctimonious, <laughs> as we called him. The, the, the rumor is this. Ryan sanctimonious is being backed by the establishment Republicans like your Paul Ryan, yeah, yeah, right, and your um, your um, McCoskey's, and definitely, Mitch McConnell's, and they want him to run the knockout to take the mega crowd and put it behind him, definitely. And that's uh, but Trump, you know, gonna try to hit him off. Big Papa ain't going down without yeah. a fight. Uh uh-uh. uh. And by the way, Elizabeth Warren did something similar with Sanders, if you remember. Yeah, yes. Hillary Clinton was trying to, yeah, when they were trying to back Warren and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. But look, Thanks, you guys Tarif. are listening to Fault Lines. Yeah, Tarif New Orleans. I want to thank our engineers, our producer, engineer, producers. I want to thank Malik Abdul for joining us. I want to thank Manila. My name is Jamal Thomas. I want to thank all the listeners that's on radio, or for that matter, the people who are watching us on Rumble. Hi, Rumblers. Thank you for all the calls. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, we'll see you bright and early tomorrow morning, Judgment Day. Go out and vote. I'm going right now. Fault Lines with Jamal Thomas.